0: back to the 4th Way Podcast. This episode is an interview slash discussion with Taylor Story, who is someone that I met in college and have followed for a long time now. I appreciate Taylor's perspective because I know his background, I know his heart, I know he's well read, and I know that he has lived in and loved so many other cultures. This episode is going to take us away from anything that you're likely to hear from most evangelicals, and something that you're not likely to hear from other Christian anarchists or, you know, um, kind of those sorts of ideologies. Um, Because today we're going to explore the merits of communism. Now, I need to make this very clear beforehand, but I am not at all going to be arguing that communism is a political or economic system that we should adopt. Hopefully you've listened to this podcast, uh, this season at least, And understand that that very well I do not advocate that type of thing so what am I trying to do here why am I having an episode on it if I'm not really advocating it well most people who I talk to about government tend to have a big hang-up with conflating politics and morality they think that they need to run the world in order to do good and to prevent evil and they think that when they're in charge they do this really well and in fact They're willing to justify their position, even if it has great evils, so long as they think it's the lesser of two evils. So people have this huge hang-up with uh, this consequentialist ethic and this idea that politics is the way that we control morality. So in our culture, and in my group in particular, that means that we have to advance a conservative agenda and we have to quash communism or socialism. That's the worst enemy that you could think of. And communism is really the age-old enemy that we invoke to justify our grasping at and lording of power over others, at least here in the West and specifically in the United States, probably more specifically the United States in the last 150 years or so. I am continually amazed at how often I find this invocation to happen. Of course, Marxism and communism are invoked today in my community if someone brings up something like, Racial reconciliation or anything along racial lines. If you care about and and think that racism exists and that there are systemic issues, you must be a Marxist. And Martin Luther King Jr. faced similar charges um, of of being a communist. I'd I'd really recommend um, you know as I was kind of researching some of of King's views, um, the book called The Radical King. Is fantastic and and there's some specific essays that that uh, King has where he addresses the charge about him being a communist. But the book is just so good, just his his thoughts and a compilation of some of his best works. Um, but yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. He faced the charge that he was a communist. Um, but today I was actually reading another book, and lo and behold, communism reared its head as a charge again. But what really surprised me about this was. This was a charge like decades before the turn of the 20th century. It was already used in a pejorative way. So I was listening to the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and it's about the history of Native Americans in the States. Now, you can probably guess that the history was pretty horrendous um, in terms of of their mistreatment and um, all the the lies that they were told and and everything. Um, But for today's episode... What's of particular interest is uh, Standing Bear and, and his community. So Standing Bear and his people were taken advantage of and subdued, and they were eventually placed in a reservation. Now when Standing Bear's son was in the throes of death, he asked his father to bury him in his homeland, because they had been moved far, far away from, from where um, you know their ancestral lands were. So Standing Bear fulfilled his son's wish by taking his body back, but... Because he left the reservation to do this, he ended up being charged and arrested with a crime. Now, the prosecution ruled at this time that Indians weren't considered persons under the law. However, amazingly, the courts at this time overruled that decision and declared that Native Americans were indeed persons under the law, particularly in light of the 14th Amendment. So, late 1800s, after slavery, I mean... Um, right in the wake of the 14th Amendment. So, yeah, I, I could see. I was kind of shocked that they ruled for Native Americans, but at the same time, um, I guess the timing of it was was good for them at that point. Nevertheless, uh, Standing Barrett and his community continued to have conflict with their oppressors, and, of course, this, this wasn't really upheld in practice by the people who were oppressing them, uh, this idea that they were persons under the law. Uh, de jure, sure, uh, de facto, no. Um. So uh, this continued, and and Standing Bear and his group, they wanted to hunt. They wanted to use horses, like like they did. I mean, like their community did. But the army would plow their pastures, take their horses. They build roads on their hunting ground, and they they try to force them to live in a particular way, like like the white man, um, or a specific way that the white man wanted them to live, you know, as farmers, um, get an education, become like we are, or like we want you to be, to be ideal citizens. Now, one of the leaders of this particular reservation uh, ended up writing a complaint because these Native Americans just kept on um, defying orders and things, and, and complaining, and he said, you know, these Native Americans, or these Indians, they were, uh, he said that they were communists who didn't want to work, they were lazy right and it's it's not that they didn't want to work at all it's that their circumstances were were that they were being oppressed and there was injustice and they couldn't be who they were really supposed to be and wanted to be and um, there was just injustice like there was, there was no motivation to do things the way that they wanted uh, that the reservation wanted them done right and you know how amazing is it that these largely illiterate native americans um, and I, I don't know when um, this was I guess probably the 18 late 1870s, 1880s and Marx I think died in like the early 80s so it's amazing that that very shortly after Marx you know became famous these largely illiterate Native Americans became Marxists became and communists and whatever else right obviously it's it, it's just untrue it's just something that was kind of leveled at somebody at, at this group as a pejorative, quit, and it was done in order to push an agenda of injustice and to justify a list of stereotypes. So right off the bat, communism, Marxism, all that stuff, is going to be the boogeyman. And it's a boogeyman that has um, been invoked over and over and over again, specifically when it comes to people trying to overturn injustices. Um, A very uh, common thread and one that makes you think twice. Every time I hear somebody call somebody else a communist from my group, I'm like, hmm, there's probably legitimate injustice going on there that my group doesn't want to face. Anyway. So I see communism used the same way today, over and over and over again. Now, that doesn't at all mean that I think communism is a fantastic system. Lording power over others is never good. However, communism isn't this great evil that warrants our implementation of some other just as ghastly system of injustice. And that truth hit me when I read Negroes with Guns and discovered that some African Americans had escaped to communist Cuba during, to and prior to the Civil Rights Movement and found communist Cuba more just than their capitalistic, democratic homeland of the United States. They were treated better in communist Cuba than they were in the United States. Or when I read how Europe underdeveloped Africa and heard an African who ended up being assassinated for his views in the end, talk about how capitalistic and democratic empires had ravaged Africa while communist nations like Cuba were fighting for human rights there or building bridges and stuff, being altruistic. And as I I learn more about how the empire of the United States has overthrown democratically elected leaders in places like Iran and a number of countries in South America, installing tyrannical pro-Western leaders, in large part to exploit good trade deals and prices for things that we want to buy? I mean, I just began to realize that while communism may be a monster, so is our system. So in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about Taylor's experiences and understanding of communism, as well as some of the demerits of capitalism. My goal for you at the end is to see how our empire indoctrinates us just as much as any communistic empire. And this was something that hit home just the other day, as my wife Catalina, um, she was substitute teaching, um, for for I guess a social studies teacher, and they they were watching this video um, on on China, and they were just saying how yes, you know, in in China they indoctrinate their children in in state sponsored schools, they um, you know they have to recite the. I don't think they use the word pledges but you know like um their their anthems or their their country's mottos or whatever and this of course is just after starting the day having all of the kids stand and put their hand over their heart and pledge their allegiance these these minors pledging their allegiance to our country it's just just insane so and then and then we go uh, and teach them indoctrinate them about how terrible uh, communism is and how wonderful capitalism and democracy are um, so it's it's just it's amazing how we like we see other countries indoctrination and we see what other countries do um, but we don't recognize where we're indoctrinated and where we ourselves indoctrinate so at the end of this i hope you can realize that all empires are evil and use propaganda to try to moralize a certain set of choices that they want you to make to feed their system. For us in the West, that's rejecting the nationalization of resources by any country we feed off of for resources and trade, right? We have to reject that, and that's what communism, and communism does. Um, if we're exploiting somebody... We can't let them nationalize those resources in order that they can then charge fair market prices to us. Those sacrificial countries, sacrificing for us, and slave laborers, sacrificing for us, feed the empire. While we are taught to consume more and more and more and more to feed the beast. When there's an economic crisis, buy more, spend more, feed the beast. And that's why Communism is so appalling. It doesn't feed the beast that we've created. And not to mention, um, the beast, the United States, Babylon, we need these other sacrificial victims like Iran. Why did we overthrow their dictator? They were trying to nationalize their oil, and we can't have that because that will make our oil prices go up. Same thing with a bunch of other countries. When they start talking about nationalization, if it's a you know, vassal state, essentially, of the United States or the West, then we can't have that. And that's why communism is such a threat to, to us. It's not that communism is inherently worse of an empire than, uh, than our system. It's that um, it prevents us from exploiting other people as much. It tries to gain some independence. Independence from our empire that that tries to control them. Anyway, I, I need to be careful or I'll go on and uh, have like a hundred different rabbit trails, so we'll stop here. This episode is going to be a bit long anyway, uh, so I've given some timestamps of the major topics that we're going to discuss, and um, t- I, I do want to note that Taylor does give a pretty long introduction. And if you're not into introduction type things and, and you kind of find that uh, a waste of space, you can skip that, look for the timestamp. Um, but you might also find it helpful to hear how he has come to some of the conclusions that he has, uh, especially if, if you aren't familiar with this type of discussion and you just can't fathom how somebody can be sympathetic towards communism. It might be helpful to hear his story. So anyway, here it is. I hope you enjoy the episode. So yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to this. And um, le- like you said, you are bringing up uh, our college years. And um, I don't know what your, what your perception is, but like when I think back and, and how um, immature I was and, and just stupid things, not bad things, just stupid things. And, and you were a part of that for, for a bit at least. Um, I mean, I, my perception of both of us is that we were, we were really goofy and so to, to be sitting here and, and having like an intellectual conversation about things, I mean, like if, if you'd go back and you'd look at all the guys in our hall, I don't think we'd be two of the people that, that would have stood out. I don't know. Do do you have a different perception yeah. than I do? <laughs> um.
1: Well, I, I do remember, yeah, some of the wacky, I mean, we you were like men's night, right? We did men's night and like had like Cheetos all over ourselves and did push ups in front of the girls' dorm. Was that you or was that only me?
0: <laughs> no, if it if it was push-ups, it probably wasn't me.
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, was yeah, on, like a particular thing that you did that was called the Bulldog, I think. Uh
0: <laughs> Greyhound, yeah.
1: <laughs> the Greyhound, the Greyhound, that's right. Um uh so yeah, I mean but I do remember also like water balloon launchers and john bardachi do you remember it remember yeah that is that <laughs> yeah so yeah a lot of wacky stuff yeah um i was sophomore class chaplain so i like to think i had a little bit of the like intellectual side and and i did take my studies pretty seriously um but i also took having fun seriously as well yeah
0: well uh yeah, that was good. I- yeah. So I, I'm sure I just didn't know you super well. So I'm sure that that was probably just a misperception on my part. Um, but I know that that, that changed for me when, um, I don't remember how many years out of college it was, but when I was, I was looking on Facebook and I'd see, I think you were in Iraq. You were in, I mean, you were in a lot of different places and, and not even normal places, but just places where yeah. I was kind of taken aback. So, um, and I started to read some of the things that you, you wrote and were saying and um yeah, just I realized that your perspective was um it wasn't just what you were saying, but it's also the perspective that you had that I thought was was helpful and especially as I've kind of been pushed away from from nationalism and political idolatry and in my camp, the mm-hmm. you know, the evangelical camp. Um, I, I've appreciated your perspective. So I would love for you to introduce yourself and Maybe even just um, in a brief way, mention some of the the places that you've been, or, th- or things that have been particularly influential for you.
1: Sure. Um, so, I am I'm from Southern California, which is a little bit weird to some people sometimes because they perceive it as a very progressive or blue liberal state or whatever. But um, I always remind people that we've had two presidents from California, and it's Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. who we are like, you know. The two most conservative presidents in you know recent memory. Um and there's actually more Trump voters in California than any other place in the United States. Mostly just because we have a huge population. But I think there's like six million Trump voters, like eleven million voted for Biden. But um, um But six million is more than any uh, more than Texas. I think Texas was like five and a half million or something. So whatever. All that to say that I grew up very conservative in California, was homeschooled kindergarten through twelfth grade, and um, went to Cedarville, Cedarville University in Ohio, and that was kind of Cody Fisher was also from my area, as was Rebecca Wolf. If do you remember them? Cody Fisher was probably
0: yeah. I remember Cody, not Rebecca so much.
1: Yeah. 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 They were actually dating, which is funny. And like, so I think that they, they broke up maybe right before they went to Cedarville, really weird, random, super random. But, um, so I kind of followed Cody out there because he was a youth ministry person and I wanted to be a youth ministry person. So I sort of followed him and my freshman year, he was my roommate. He was a senior and the RA of our hall, I think. So I went to Cedarville and yeah, it was cool. I mean, I guess just thinking about Cedarville, I was, I went to Cedarville, I was looking at Point Loma in San Diego. And the reason I thought for sure I would go to Point Loma, uh, which is like right on the beach. It's also a Christian school, Point Loma Nazarene. Um, And like, my thing was I wanted to study youth ministry just because I wanted to be a youth minister. So I figured youth ministry is the thing to study if you want to be a youth pastor. I really had no idea what I was doing. I was choosing college. Um, But I went to Cedarville, the chapel, and um, I thought it was just going to be like visiting, you know, but when I was comparing Cedarville and Point Loma, I chose Cedarville because people there seem to take things much more seriously than at Point Loma. Like when I went to chapel at Point Loma, the group in front of me was doing their homework and the and the people behind me were asleep in chapel and I was just like, man, this feels like you guys don't really care that much. And I started asking people, like, so why are you here? And they're like, oh, because, I mean, the beach is right there. And I was like, I mean, I like the beach, but I want to take this seriously, you know? And then I went to uh, um, Cedarville, and I think there was this guy, Lou. Do you remember Lou? He was much more intellectual or, you know, yeah, yeah. strongly conservative. Um, and he ended up writing a book something about rhinos and it's like Republican and name only. So he was like strongly Republican. I can't remember his last name, but I remember having a conversation with Lou and with Mugabe, the basketball player. And I was just like, if this is what this is like, I want to be in these conversations. So that's kind of why I ended up Cedarville because I thought people took it way more seriously there. Um, and then I did, a year it was cool and came back for the second year and it was cool. But I was also kind of like people here even more can, like I actually agreed with basically everything that was happening at Cedarville. Like um, I'm trying to think of like some of the crazy things. I mean, people were, I didn't think women should be in ministry. Um, and I remember people would like boycott chapel if a woman was speaking in chapel. Um, but I was just kind of like everybody thinks the same as me. And it's kind of weird. Like I, I kind of want like a bigger experience. I want like, you know, universe itty, you know, university. So like, I wanted like a bigger, um, ideas. I wanted more ideas, more kind of weird lifestyles. Um, I wanted to interact with people who shared crazy different views than me. And that just wasn't happening at Cedarville. It was also very cold. So, um, I didn't come back after my sophomore year, and it was kind of like, I said it was the cold, but it was also just kind of like, I just everybody's the same as me and it just felt weird. So I worked for a church for a year, which was cool. And it kind of like was weird a little bit because it just sort of fell flat. They actually gave me a lot of um, leeway to do whatever I wanted. And I started like a college group and it was really well attended at first. Um, but then it just kind of quickly became like, people don't need another church service. And I was kind of like, it's kind of weird. Like, what are we doing here actually? Um, And I just didn't see a lot of progress. So I was kind of like disillusioned a little bit, but I ended up going to Azusa Pacific University, which was kind of like the most progressive conservative school there is. Like it's still, we still had chapel three times a week. Um, And uh, Francis Chan spoke every semester. So I guess Francis Chan was like slightly, a little bit, but I mean, it's still like strongly, like if you don't pray this a certain prayer, then you're going to burn in hell for eternity. Um, if you were gay, then you would get kicked out of the school. Um, <laughs> recently, they kind of changed that rule for like two weeks. And then I think some some of their donors freaked out and they said, okay, that's not happening anymore. So like, it was okay to be gay at APU for about two weeks. Um there was a gay club on campus, which is funny. Like it was a poetry club. And I went one night to their thing and my friend was like, dude, you know this is the gay club, right? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then like I started to look around and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm pretty sure all these people are gay. It's like poetry was like their thing that they said, you know but then in actuality it was like the gay the gay club. Um and AP was cool, I had a lot of fun. Um there wasn't really people didn't take it as seriously. I mean, and like, to be honest, this is California. Um, people love fun, 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 just fun, you know? Um, so I finished APU and I really wanted to go abroad at that point. I wanted to work for missionaries. Um, but what kind of, that was 2010 kind of right when like, I think a lot of the financial crisis was hitting hard and I was ended up being a communication major. Um, but at APU like Cedarville, I was, um, I was the only student in my two years there who got to speak in chapel, um, which was like this insane honor that like I can't believe I was given. But I was um, really active in helping plan student cha- or chapels in general, and um, and they didn't do it the first year I was there because the year before I was there, their student speaker like went off the rails and I think maybe said a cuss word or something like that, and so they were like, okay, no, this isn't going to happen. So it didn't happen my junior year. And then my senior year, I got a call. Like, it was really funny the way it all came together. And I probably skip this because you know, we I'll keep it shorter, but, um, but they, they said, Hey, we would like a student to speak in chapel and we thought of you. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So, um, so I did, I got to speak for like, you know, 20 minutes in front of 5,000 students, which was incredible. And it went incredible. Um, and I think like, a month later, I was at a baseball, Padres, San Diego Padres baseball game, walking down with like, some nachos or something, and somebody yells, that's the guy who spoke in chapel. <laughs> and I like, look over, and it was people I'd never seen in my life. I was just like, that, and that sort of thing was happening a lot, um, just because it went so well. Um, anyways, after that, I got a job at a church in Santa Cruz, California, with a pastor named Dan Kimball, who started the Emerging Church Movement. Um, or he's the first one to say that word. And he brought Mark Driscoll, Rob Bell, Doug, Doug Paget, Tony Jones. I don't know, like all these people together. And, um, and he was actually extremely conservative, but, and he thought he's like, we're just like adding painting in, in church. Right. You know, we're just like more candles and a little bit more like liturgical things. And, and so when like Tony Jones and Doug Paget, I don't really know them that well. Um, actually we're saying, no, we're actually talking about a little bit different theology. Like we're not conservative theologically anymore. Then like Dan was like, oh my gosh, cut ties. Like it's not me, but everybody associated Dan Kimball with this like progressive thing um, or this <laughs> very, like very mildly outside the box of evangelicalism thing. I guess, you know, they started to, Changed some perspectives. Um, I worked there for two years. And I would say it was very similar to Cedarville, very similar to the first church I worked at, very similar to APU, um, in that it just kind of fell flat, I guess. And I was like, because I, I read the Bible every day from when I was 16 years old until I was 26. And it's not like I don't read the Bible. If you read the Bible every day for 10 years, you know, I've hidden God's word in my heart. And so it's not like, like I think of the Bible constantly. Um, and I still read the Bible probably, I don't know, every three days, probably something like that. Um, but I just wasn't seeing the good news actually good. And I also started playing soccer on a Salvadorian soccer team. I was the only white guy, like, there was like ten um Hispanic teams and like two white guy teams, which is kind of funny but um so I was on the Salvadorian team, which is only one Salvadorian team um but they just were the people that lived near me so i I played with these guys and they were all like immigrants, half of them spoke English, maybe, but we spoke all Spanish to each other. I lived in Mexico for one semester and studied Spanish, and then like just played soccer with people um. Spanish-speaking people, uh, like basically my whole life. Um, so I was playing with these Salvadorian guys and just starting to like learn about their lives. And I was just like, man, this is crazy. And like my kind of, I was doing youth group, but it was so separate. You know, I had this like very white upper middle class, like hip church that I was a part of working at, you know, trying to save souls, etc. And then, I had this Salvadorian soccer team that I was playing at. And I was like, you know, the only thing they have is the Catholic church really. I mean, there's also like a little bit of Pentecostal stuff and like our white upper middle-class theology that we had developed just kind of shit on the Catholic church, excuse my language. As I got to know them, I was like, this is weird. And we have like influence in our town. We are not using it at all for like the immigrant community. And I got like a couple of these guys to come to church with me. And it was like, it was, it was bad because people were just like, who's that guy over there? Like, what's, you know, what's, what was that guy? And like one, like he didn't speak English that good. And so I was kind of like helping him translate stuff, but it was just realizing like, man, there's something, something weird about this disconnect, you know? And I would bring it up every so often in church and they would just kind of like set, set it aside. And I was kind of like, I was just really disappointed. At the same time that was happening, um, this kid started coming to youth group, his name's Dylan, and parents started coming up to me like, oh my gosh, Dylan, Dylan's coming to youth group. I'm like, Oh yeah, cool. Like, what's what's the deal? And they're like, his mom is like the most crazy atheist lady in the whole town. And I'm like, Really? Like, yeah, anytime, like anything barely Christian happens anywhere, she's like on the phone calling, like freaking out that they had like prayer in school and all this stuff. And they're like, just be really careful around her because she is, you know, insane, very anti-Christian, militant, atheist. I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'll keep that in mind, you know, (laughs) just like just going to do, you know, do my, do the work and uh and so i dylan plays soccer with a couple of the other kids at youth group so i end up going to their soccer game and just walking up there and i see dylan's mom i know who she is because people are like pointed out out to me and stuff i'm like oh my gosh it's dylan's mom i am like you know what full armor of god right now like i'm gonna pray pray this through i'm gonna go i'm gonna talk to dylan's mom just like base hit you know just very chill conversation just like make a connection very chill and so I walked up there and I see her and I'm like, Hey, you're Dylan's mom. Oh, hi, you know, like very nice, cordial. And then she's like, Yeah, you know, I heard so much about you. You do youth group stuff. I'm like, Oh yeah, I do, you know, like this and that. And she's like, and you're soccer game, do you play soccer? And I was like, I was like, Yeah, yeah, I do play soccer. I play with these Salvadorians, actually, this this team we speak Spanish. She's like, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. She's like, I've been volunteering with this organization that helps immigrants like integrate into the United States and um I've read actually about like the Salvadorian people that are leaving. And so we like start and I I was just like, wait, what? And I, so I started talking to her and she just had like, she's kind of like the Christian that I was looking for, except she wasn't a Christian, you know? And that was just, because I remember walking up that hill thinking, it's Dylan's mom, you know, put on the full armor of God. I'm like praying as I walk up the thing. And I feel like, you know, all the little guys in my battle station are like, you know, ready with their guns and things, ready to like destroy the enemy or something if it comes, you know, whatever, spiritual warfare. And then there she is. And she's like the answer that I was kind of looking for, especially when it came to immigrants. And I was just like, that was the weirdest conversation. And I end up leaving and just feeling like I just had one of the most Christian conversations I'd ever had because of the compassion and empathy, understanding that she had for these people. And it was around that time that I was just like realizing that the church wasn't going to answer my questions. Like, um, especially like, what's the deal with Catholicism? And like, when were these Salvadorian people supposed to like hear the gospel the way we present it? You know, like it's just not It's not there. It's, there's not a possibility, um, where they can go to the Catholic church. And I just saw, so I started interacting with more parents of the youth group and I started to see that so many of the people that I've been trained to be against were more Christian than the people (laughs) that I was trained to be. I'm a part of this, you know, like, and so that was just super disorienting at the same time. I had two friends whose. Uh, They didn't know each other, but it was the father of one and the mother of the other committed suicide. Both of them super strong, dedicated Christian people. Both of these guys, super strong, dedicated Christian guys. And I had a front row seat to it, to both of them, you know. And I was also in seminary and, oh, it was like a gospel coalition seminary, Western seminary it's called. So like Mark Driscoll actually went there. This was in San Jose. That one's up in Portland where he went. But um, <clears throat> there was just a bunch of times where I was like, oh my gosh, this is so intellectually irresponsible. One of them was a church history class. We we're talking about the the history of the Sunday morning service. And um, our book had like four chapters on Acts. And then it had like three pages from <laughs> like... The end of Acts until Martin Luther. I kid you not. It was, this was like, you know, 1400 years or something. And it had like four chapters on like the Reformation. It was a like, okay, like a little bit of like displace the blame here. It was about the Sunday service. So it wasn't like, like how the Sunday service developed. It wasn't exactly church history. But, the, but basically what they said is that the, like, there was a liturgical era. And then that lasted all the same until Martin Luther. So like... I don't know, in like the 100, I mean, I think it must've said, I should get that book again, but it must've said, you know, like between 100 and 400, like developed like this, like more high church liturgical Catholic style model. And that didn't change until Martin Luther. And I just remember looking at that and then like four chapters on the Protestant Reformation, four, four chapters on the Puritans, and then like two or three chapters on like modern evangelicalism since Billy Graham or something, you know? And I was just like, three pages, you know? And and so I raised my, I like worked up the courage because everybody was just kind of like sheeping it up, you know, like whatever the professor says. I like took a little bit of courage because I was like, this seems crazy. It seems like the emperor is wearing no clothes here, you know? Raised my hand and I said, you know, what's so, how come we only have three pages, you know, like you know, whatever for like this, like 1400 year period or something. And he just looks at me and he goes, and not that much changed during that time period. Anyways, when Martin Luther came on the scene, I was just like, I was like, this seems really irresponsible. And what does that say about our God as well? I was like, so if you're born in like the 700s, just like, hey, man, like light that candle and that's the best you got. You know, like I was just like, this does like says something bad about our God that what he doesn't care about the people like for 1400 years or you know what i just so it was that kind of thing was happening yeah and nobody would talk about it you know and i would bring it up to like the senior pastor you know and he'd be like yeah you know it's great that you're doing seminary it's like that's really cool that's you're gonna learn so much i was like but how you know what's the deal and he's like oh that'll come you know later and that's it sounds like you want there should be take a different class you know they do offer a church history class i think I wonder maybe that's only like once every other semester that one's offered, you know, like it was that kind of like, he wouldn't actually engage with the question. He would just kind of like, so that sort of thing was happening over and over and over. And I was just like, and then, and I felt again, like my youth ministry, like there was a bunch of, you know, just the typical like church business things that you're like, Oh my gosh, that's a mess. That situation. That's not, a, there's no spirituality, Christianity, biblical. That's not there. That's like Starbucks. That's like organizational management, what is being done in this situation, you know? And so I was just, I had this dream to go study in Jerusalem. So luckily one of the professors actually had a connection to this place called Jerusalem university college. And I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, I had to, I was just like, I have to get out of here. I have to get out of this like upper middle-class white evangelical where everybody's the same. And I'm like, I sort of believe it, but it just keeps falling flat. And so I went to Jerusalem and it was the first time I had had a non-Christian professor. I had some Jewish professors, some secular ones, some like Orthodox ones. We took a history of, I took a history of ancient Israel class. And actually all the students were like American, mostly 95%. U S American students from conservative evangelical universities in the United States that would spend one semester there. And so I show up and we have this like secular Jewish guy. Who's like just insane biblical archaeologist, crazy, crazy, like, you know, has done everything for the last like 30 years. He's been super close to all everything that's happened in the last 30 years archeologically in Israel. And he goes, okay, so basically we're just going to go through the Bible and like talk about archeological things that are connected to these stories. And he's like, okay, so Adam and Eve, no expectation. I mean, it's like a garden. It's, there's going to be a flood that happens. Everything is, you know, so there's we have no expectation of finding anything related to Adam and Eve. He's like Abraham same. he's like a wandering nomad. Uh, let's just get the flood. I forget what he said about the flood. He just talked about how there was like, you know, flood stories and all these civilizations and some definitely archeological evidence for like localized floods and he kind of moved past it. Then he gets to Moses and he's like, okay, Moses, the Bible says 400,000 slaves lead Egypt and he pulls 400,000 men, men only, not including women, children, livestock. So he's like, basically we're looking at probably like a million people here, a million people from this time period, supposed to have left, crossed the Red Sea, all this other stuff. And he's like, no evidence, nothing. He's like, here's the possible, here's the thing that people say that are possible evidence. And he like walks through, like, there's this thing, you know, like there's these Hyksos people that are possibly related, but he's like, they can't be it because of this, this, this. And he's like, and there's this other one that's like possibly it, and it's not, and it's this, this, this. And like I brought up the like red, the chariot wheels and the red sea and stuff, you know, that one. Um, <laughs> and he's like, it was like the class. had, we'd taken a break and he's like smoking a cigarette outside in Jerusalem, you know? And, and I'm like, so I heard this thing like that. There's the chariot wheels in the red sea or something that they find it. And he's like, <sighs> and he's like, that's probably this guy, Ron Wyatt. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I learned it from Kent Hovind and Ken Ham or something, you know? And he's like, he's like, yeah, Ron Wyatt, he's, uh, he's also found the Ark of the Covenant. He found Noah's Ark. He found Jesus's cross. He found, and he just like runs through like every biblical thing. <laughs> and he's like, but he can't pr- reproduce any of it. And he's like, he also doesn't have a license. People on the dig with him are like, uh, we didn't find anything like this. We're not sure what he's talking about. And so he's like, so he's, he can't, he's like, that guy can't get a license and he's not really, he's not a real archeologist. He can't, he can't do it. You know, it's look him up, but just, he's like, if there's all his stuff, he can't show any of it. And so then like, I think the rest of that class period, I was just like on my computer, like Googling Ron Wyatt. And basically everything he said is true. And, um, and then Ron Wyatt, even like, I think Ken Ham or somebody major was like, we have to stop using Ron Wyatt because he's, no, like it's none of it is actually true, but they were so excited and like all the churches in the United States would like invite this guy to speak. There's even like a funny, a comedy made about him, but they don't connect his name. I It's called like um, John Bardeen or something like that. I don't know. I can look it up and send you a link la- later, but it's, it's like by the people that did Napoleon dynamite and they have like, they did a, a video, a movie about this guy So Israel, and then I had like an evangelical professor who took us around Israel. And when I was at Jericho in particular, she explained like, yeah, basically we would expect for this to be the case archaeologically, but she's like, there's basically nobody in Jericho for the like 600 year period. It's like an uninhabited place when, when supposedly Joshua happened. And she's like, now there's some interesting things about that. You know, that means also that most of the, like, and God killed every man, woman, and child, and everything that had breath. She's like, so that is probably a literary style. In fact, she's like, you see that repeated everywhere else. It's like saying that, like, the the Chicago Bulls destroyed the Phoenix Suns, you know. We would know what that means. It does not mean that, like, a male cow destroyed a celestial thing. No, it means that like Michael Jordan beat Magic Johnson's basketball team, you know, the <laughs> won a basketball game. There's no destruction happening. So like when it says that in the text, you know, that's probably what it means. Um so that semester just blew everything apart for <laughs> me. That was 2012. And it was so weird because it happened biblically. And and then I also was I met with a Benedictine monk every Wednesday, this guy who had taught um, at the Vatican, he taught New Testament and patristics for 30 years. And he was just dropping so much biblical and historical information when I met with him every Wednesday that I was just, everything that I had been told about Catholics in particular, actually, because Catholics, oh, they don't really care about the Bible. And then I meet, like, a Benedictine monk who's, like, taught the Bible and Christian history for 30 years. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I've somewhere, I missed something, you know, like, or it was not provided for me. Um, so then that was 2012, like I said, and that kind of launched, like, holy, what is going on? I need to rethink everything. And I like, definitely I returned to like a conservative people and they just kind of got angry at me that, um, I wasn't being positive or, um, that I wasn't listening to them. And I was kind of like, sorry, Ron Wyatt is like, he's a quack, like look him up, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but they wouldn't, they would just get really angry basically when um, I kind of brought that stuff up and I started also to wonder like, well, I mean, there's just a million things. I went to China for a year. Well, first I lived in San Diego with like these super Christian guys, which was like kind of insane because one of them in particular was really excited to want to hear everything about uh, everything I had learned in Jerusalem. And I was like, well, you know, it's not really like what you want to hear. And <laughs> So eventually I did and then like I overheard him talking to another roommate like about me saying like, man, we need to pray for Taylor because I don't know like how his his salvation is like in jeopardy and like all this stuff. Yeah, they, they didn't know I was home and they like walked in and one guy was like, he's like, dude, I had lunch with Taylor the other day. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, man. Uh, Not what I expected. And he's like, really? It's like, yeah, man. Uh, I mean, he, he like, kind of like, maybe took the. I don't remember what he said, but it got to the point where the guy was like, "Is he saved?" And he's like, "I think he is, but we need to be praying for him." And I was just like, "Oh God, I gotta get out of here," you know, because, and no, like that was the thing is that nobody was willing to like address these questions, and these were like these are straight out of the Bible kinds of questions about the Bible, about biblical history, about. Um, even why conservative Christianity kept falling flat, I guess. It just, I just, it's like, this is not really good news. Like the Salvadorians don't, um, receive it that way. Like just general secular people, the hippie neighbors next door, they don't receive it as good news. Um, and I feel like we're saying that like 95% of the world is going to burn in hell. That's not good news. Um, and I just did not see like, women caught in adultery that wanted to hang out with us. You know, I didn't see Samaritan bad theology people that wanted to hang out with us. I didn't see, I didn't see that, you know? So I had to look elsewhere and like, believe me, I was asking like crazy. I've, I've had serious conversations with every single denomination there is. And then Jerusalem expanded that to like Catholic Orthodox, um, and then in the subsequent years, like, um, every, every tradition you can imagine, uh, one of which the most excited one for me was the Assyrian church of the East, which is, they still speak the same language that Jesus did Aramaic and it's a Christian community. It's like centered in Iraq and the area that I was, I got to like hang out with them. Um, and have a real long conversation with like one of the serious like leaders there. It was like really, really incredible. Um, But I'm like going a little quick. This was supposed to just be introduction, right? But uh,
0: (laughs) yeah, it's okay.
1: (laughs) So then I did China for a year and that was kind of like, I think I told somebody I wasn't a Christian then, which was uh, kind of a crazy thing for me. But I was just, that was, I was trying to catch up with like all the like secular reading that I'd never done. You know, like I read Catcher in the Rye and like The Fault in Our Stars, like all the kind of young adult fiction. And I was just kind of, um, yeah, I was traveling a lot. I went to Vietnam. That's, that was something I was going to bring up, uh, Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Japan. Um, yeah. So China. And then after China, I did two years working solar in the middle of that was in Nicaragua for two months. And then afterwards, I got contacted by Samaritan's Purse, actually. Um, and it was I was at a wedding and this guy I sat next to at this wedding from a roommate from Azusa Pacific. So I sat next to this guy and he I was telling him about Israel and Nicaragua and China. And he was like, oh, my gosh we have like a team of people that we send to disasters around the world and you sound like you'd be a perfect fit for it. And I was really hesitant when he said Samaritan's Purse because like, I don't really agree with like hardly anything about Samaritan's Purse, but he's like, we'll pay you a bunch of money and just send you in there with like helicopters and like unlimited supply of like, you just go and like do good in a place. And I was like, that sounds pretty awesome. (laughs) So they flew me out to North Carolina and went through this like minor training. I think it was really just like, they're trying to know if they can trust me to not freak out if I'm in the middle of nowhere or something like, I think that's what they were most concerned with. Um, and then like a little bit of like kind of indoctrination, but honestly the indoctrination that I like kind of went through was more like you're humanitarian, not a missionary. Um, because Samaritan's Purse got kicked out of Indonesia for being too much missionary. And so they're like, you can kind of pray with people individually, but like on a public level, you're a humanitarian aid worker. And, um, so we help in Jesus' name, but we don't, um, like proselytize explicitly. Um, but you do think that being gay is like a sin and you do think that, abortion is murder. And you do think that, I mean, basically they only hire, um, very Republican people. <laughs> um, so I knew, I knew how to answer the questions though, and like the way that they wanted to. So I just kind of, I did, I sort of danced around those topics a little bit. Um, because by then I had like, well, I just, I guess I just thought that the conservative, like punish everybody for not being like us was not effective and didn't uh, reflect God or Jesus or whatever. So they sent me to Haiti. Um, I was there for a month and I thought that was going to be the end. Um, I did, they wanted me to stay longer, but I was like, basically like, I can't do this. Like me being a super conservative Christian thing. Cause we did Bible studies every morning. And like, basically like, if you question any of it, then it's like, you just can't do that. So, um, so I just wanted, I wanted I was 30 days. That's enough. And they, they pay you good. It's like $175 a day or something. They're all paid. Um, it's cause it's humanitarian work. So like they actually get money from the, the United Nations, um, from like the government, from Congress, from it's not all private donations, this international side of things. um, <clears throat> And then I went straight from there to the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature Conference, which I've now been to twice. That's like where like Harvard, Yale, you know, basically all the big universities send all their Bible people to this. And it that is like, it's incredible. I mean, there there are some conservative people there as well. But, um, but uh, I got to hear like Bart Ehrman speak. Do you know Bart Ehrman?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And they had the guy who, so he wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. Yeah. And then someone wrote, this Australian guy, Michael Bird, wrote a rebuttal to him called How God Became Jesus. And they're dealing with, like, all the historical stuff that I had kind of studied in Jerusalem. So, like, I went, packed room, you know. And to be honest, like, Bart Ehrman just tore this guy apart, like, it was like the amount of reading that Ehrman had done and like study and like reference to like obscure, like Greek manuscripts and all this stuff, the Michael Bird guy like couldn't keep up. And he he had to admit like Bird was honest too. He was like, mm, I haven't looked into that, you know? And he's like, I think that you'd find the answer if you would look at this, this, and this, and this. And he's like, no, that makes some more sense or what, you know? And, so, I actually texted Dan Kimball and I, because I had, I met with all the pastors that I had worked for and just said, like, hey, these are the reasons why, like, I'm, I basically don't agree with the stuff that we had said before, you know. And Dan was really interested in particular. And we kind of like had this, like, back and forth going for a little while, very, like, you know, friendly. But I was just kind of like, and I texted him I was like, it's not about like your coffee shop or like your sales techniques. I was like, it what really matters is like you're not addressing like the real biblical conversation. And, um. and he, and everybody, all the pastors i worked for, they all said like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get back to you. I'm going to get back to you on this. None of them ever, ever did on any of this stuff. Um. And all like in particular, I would bring up Bart Ehrman in particular. It was like, you've got to like respond to this. Like, I was in a room with like 300 Christian leaders and Bart Ehrman like wiped the floor with Michael Bird, And like, I don't think anybody doubts that who was in that room, you know, and like, that's basically all your best leaders are picking this stuff up and then realizing the way we believe the Bible is untenable, basically. So, and both of them were like, oh yeah, Bart Ehrman, you know, like I've been looking into his stuff and we're going to like address that in this way or that way. I'm going to write a blog post about it. I was like, okay, okay. But it just, it just never comes. And I think it's because they, I don't know. I mean, it it never comes. So,
0: so where would you, where would um, you say you land now? Would you consider yourself a Christian and what, what would you mean by that?
1: Um, I would, I mean... It's weird because I think what Christian meant to me, I'll say before I was 30, I don't identify with that pretty much at all. But, like, more than ever, I feel like I'm more Christian than I've ever been. Um, But when you say that word to anybody, they typically mean what i thought before i was 30 i'm just kind of like
0: yeah so i I guess i would say if if you would if you would stick to the i guess what you consider the the basic tenets you know like uh jesus was human and divine um i mean like like the most basic the three three to five most basic things yeah
1: Yeah. And I think when you put a historical lens on some of this stuff, it changes things. So one of the craziest ones is like Jesus being the son of God. Um, because at the time there was coins everywhere that said Caesar Augustus son of God on them. If you went to a marketplace, it says like, uh, I think it's like Filius Deus or something like that, you know, like the, the brother or the son of God somehow. And it was, I guess, because of, um, his father, when his father died, there was this emperor cult, right? And so there was some meteor and they said, oh, he went back to the heavens. And so Caesar Augustus is the son of God. And so when we look at the biblical text, it's almost always, there's, it's only, he's only called son of God a few times. And it's a Roman person who calls him son of God. And it's like, basically he's saying, you're bringing a new kingdom and it's not like a Roman imperial kingdom. It's a, it's a different kind of kingdom. Now, we think of God in, like, this European way, but not in, like, a first century way. And so I think of Jesus as the son of God, and I think of him, like, divine, for sure. But I don't think of him in, like, a, I guess, 20th century empirical, like, European idea of God, God. You know, um, but I do think of him as like, yes, yeah, like I do think of him as divine, but I, but divinity has changed for me. So, so it's not the same as what the typical person, but then, and then when I talked to the, like the Benedictine monk and I would bring that up, he's like, oh yeah, you know, that's what John Cashin said. That's what origin kind of claimed this sort of thing. And he's like, this is what he, like he'd name off all these church fathers that basically I, he's like you know, that perspective is like totally within Christianity. Like that's.
0: Yeah. And that, that's, that's one of the know. things that, um, yeah. you know, I'm coming to realize more and more, which is, um, I th- I think I appreciate that about Catholicism where it's, it's way more broad. I mean, yeah. Uh, Cause their idea of hell, I mean, you could be an annihilationist. You even have, I remember reading Gregory of Nyssa and I was like, he sounds like a universalist, but he can't be because he was a Christian. And <laughs> so yeah. welcome come <laughs> to find out that yeah. there were actually, I mean, it was a minority, but there were definitely universalists, like some major one, like Gregory of Nyssa, nobody would throw him out
1: mm-hmm. of,
0: of Christianity. Yeah. Um, so some of these things, it's like, man, we we really boxed ourselves in. We, the, the church that I grew up in, that I attended Christian school at for my life, they wouldn't consider supporting us because we didn't we couldn't say that Israel was going to be like the Israel in revelation was going to be the literal Israel reinstated, like the physical geographical Israel I'm like really mm-hmm. that that's like that's kind of a sticking point for you, and we just like we we make yeah, our box so small, crazy. it's crazy
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, and I, like, I would say it fell flat first and then I started like looking outside and then just realizing, especially that there's like, when we look at these things, these things with a historical lens, like the meaning of what God is means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and people that like Gregor of that's like, absolutely is a Christian, you know? And then you're like, I think he's a universalist. Like well, and you know, they don't even know who that is, right? Like most yeah. evangelicals, like it's
0: yeah, like I said, I mean, honestly, so <laughs> so I joined. Part of the reason that I went reformed was because it was it was very refreshing to me that they took church yeah. hi- church history seriously, or I, I thought they did. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, what I grew up with was just fluff. Like it was just, I mean, Billy Graham. Yeah. Was as far back as we could go, um, yeah. But what I've learned about the Reformed believers is basically it's like I said: you got Paul, Augustine, maybe a little bit of Aquinas, and then it's Luther, Calvin. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. you just you just don't know anything about about anybody, other than Augustine. Yeah. Augustine Augustine is yeah. huge.
1: Yeah, and I, like actually, it was weird. I read like some people kind of knocking Augustine before I read people that loved him. No, I read like Francis Schaeffer, I guess, and Francis Schaeffer like had spent some time with Augustine in his like "How Should We Then Live" video series, especially. I think, um, but I read I read a book that like basically you know kind of tore apart his like original sin idea or whatever. I mean, and it's it's weird. Like it seems. Uh, this feels like a rabbit trail, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Augustine. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I okay.
1: I've dealt with him a little bit, but not a lot.
0: So yeah. speaking of rabbit trails, let's, uh, that was like an hour long introduction. So, um, <laughs> which is good. It's good. It was interesting.
1: Well, now, yeah, you know, the backstory to like all the political stuff, I guess, that we'll talk about now.
0: Yeah. And then all the conservatives can stop listening to you cause they know you're not. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway,
1: I feel like I'm a biblical literalist though, for so many reasons, but not like this. you know i th- I feel like my take on Son of God because it's referencing the first century like what that meant in that context, so I feel like I'm a biblical literalist because of that, you know
0: right, yeah, whereas yeah, we isagitte <laughs> and import things uh for sure yeah so but what i what I really want your expertise on is um talking about yeah talking about something else so so let me um let me kind of tell you where like this is supposed to release like over a year from now I'm kind of I kind of get in these spurts and and plan ahead and so I've just done a lot of a lot of thinking um about about government because 2016 Mm -hmm. threw me off It, it was it was great it helped me to kind of rethink things and um, I actually, one of the things that I came to first was was pacifism. And um, so pacifism for me had some significant implications because if, if I'm not to do violence and basically the state bears the sword and legislation is violence. I mean, when you legislate something uh, like mm-hmm. a speeding ticket, I mean, if you don't pay it, you get a warrant for your arrest. If you refuse to go... They they forcefully take you to jail. So like legislation is violence. So figuring out mm-hmm. how do I how do I consistently live out politics with a belief in pacifism, and then also seeing that well conservatives are terrible, liberals are terrible because um, it sounds like maybe you're you're okay with abortion. Um, for me, that is killing an innocent human life. Um, so I. Yeah. I can't, I can't get on board with that, but I can't get on board with legislating abortion either, and just the you know stoning the adulterers. So I just, it's, Mm -hmm. it's all a problem. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: So, and and with talking talking with you a lot, I know that that I think you have a similar view of the church that I do about it. It really being the prophetic voice. So our job isn't to legislate abortion. Our job isn't to. Um, you know, legislate immigration, but we're to be a prophetic voice when we see evils happening. And we're supposed to come alongside people and love mm-hmm. them, and but we, we can still call it evil mm-hmm. evil and say that it shouldn't be done. Um, but what what I'm finding, so talking about politics with people, especially our group or the group that that we grew up with, is conservatives have a really difficult time um, divorcing empire from morality. So like, you know, when you think of anarchism or, or whatnot, and you think of no government, you think, well, then there's chaos and there's evil, there's raping, there's murder. Uh, and so they, they see empire as, as kind of morality or the tool for morality. So what, what I want to do with you is I want to ask you some questions and, and maybe hear some of your thoughts because, um, I want to kind of undermine that idea that empire is morality because especially in the states democracy is moral and capitalism is moral like that's that's what makes our government moral because we are providing flourishing for our people and we are giving our people a voice and so the the antithesis of that in our minds is is communism you know communism is evil because it's the opposite of of capitalism and the opposite of of democracy because it's kind of government force so I don't like either. I don't like communism, but I don't like capitalism. And I, I know those are economic systems too. And, mm-hmm. and but that that tends to blend with with uh politics. So um I want you to kind of help us think through maybe um helping us to see how how communism isn't as bad as people make it out to be. Um so maybe taking away the demonization, but then also showing how capitalism is evil in ways that, that people don't tend to see. And my point isn't to say that communism or mm-hmm. capitalism is good, but to point out that, um, mm-hmm. because both of these things are, are issues that empire is bad. I guess that's, and maybe you disagree yeah. with that. Um, but no,
1: <laughs> no, empire is bad. Okay. Well, empire is opposite of, you know, it's Babylon, I guess, uh, it's like, like Jews still lived in Babylon, you know, and it like sort of functioned for them from time to time. But it's like, ultimately it's not Jerusalem, you know, it's not, uh, it's not what we're called to, I guess. Um, um, so I think, I think maybe I'll start, do you know Jay Gresham Machen? Do you know who that is? He wrote a book called Christianity and liberalism. Wasn't he like
0: one of the the founders of, was it Westminster or?
1: Yes. 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 So he was at Princeton and then Princeton got a little bit too liberal for him. And so they left. I don't know if he got kicked out or if he left on his own accord. I don't know. But he started, yes, Westminster Seminary or whatever. And he wrote a book, kind of small book called Christianity and Liberalism. And he, in the beginning, he says, this was written, I think it's in 1923. And he says, we have to protect individual rights. Because um, there's a creeping socialism that is infringing upon our individual rights in 1923. And being a student of history, I know that women got the right to vote in 1919, I think. It was 1919 or 1920. It was like January 1st, 1920. You know, like that was the the moment, whatever. But, uh, and so I was like, that seems like a big win for individual rights, you know, like women have individual rights now. And I was like, so if he's for individual rights, he should be pro women's suffrage then. Right. I look it up. No, he was not. He was against women's suffrage because that's creeping socialism. It infringed upon his individual rights. Other things that were happening at that time, uh, black people, were starting to enter society a little bit in the 1920s. In particular, at Princeton I found out they had the first black people in the dorms. So he as a champion of individual rights, he should be thrilled, right? Because like black people are finally getting individual rights, right? Nope. He the, there's letters that he wrote to his mom saying how angry he was that they were allowing black people to come and infringe on his individual rights. And so then this kind of changed a lot for me. You know, like I started to realize, okay, this creeping socialism thing and this whole like individual rights thing, whose rights are you talking about here? Because it looks to me like people are gaining individual rights um, with all the things that they're calling socialism. Uh, um, I mean, they called Martin Luther King a communist. And actually, he did. He, he did, like, have friendly relations with communist people. With Rosa Parks was active in communist groups. Nelson Mandela was in jail for being a communist. Nelson Mandela, the guy who ended apartheid. Um, now, he tried to kind of, I mean, he... he Have you read about Nelson Mandela? Because there is like a little bit of an asterisk on that. Like he said, I was never like fully a communist, but then like, we're pretty sure you were. And the things that he was involved in that put him in jail were things that communists were involved in. So he tried to say he was never really a communist. But um, uh, Jerry Falwell got really upset. Like he called Desmond Tutu a phony because he was working with Nelson Mandela, who's a communist. Um, but then I'm like, the people are gaining individual rights here. So like, maybe from our perspective, from the perspective of Jay Gresham Machen, he is, his losing of this insane privilege is like, he feels like he's losing his individual rights because now he has to compete with black people. He has to work with women. So that's... I think that the idea that socialism, communism, um, is, is, uh, against rights is a little bit off for that reason, because you have to ask who, um, um and then, well, yeah. Does that make sense to you at all or?
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um,
1: yeah and
0: uh i think did that
1: answer the question i can't remember the question exactly oh like de de demonize socialism communism a little bit
0: yeah so uh you told me a couple stories so first story you told me was i think you were at a you were at a bar and you met this communist in germany and mm. uh could you talk a little bit about that conversation and how that sort of changed your perspective
1: yeah um and maybe the big one was Nicaragua, but then like it's because in Nicaragua you go all over the place and there are political billboards that say, um, Christian socialist solidarity. And I remember seeing that just like, what, what, what is this? And, um, and everywhere I'd go, like people would be like, Oh, where are you from? And I'd say, Oh, I'm from the U S and they like, kind of look at me and like, that's okay. Like we know that like, you guys have changed so much since Ronald Reagan. Like, we know, like, we know that you have changed. So much. Like you're not, we know that you're not Ronald Reagan, you know? And like, I was just kind of like, mm. I actually, his ranch is like 15 minute drive that way, the Ronald Reagan ranch. And everybody in this town loves Ronald Reagan. And I was just like, what are you, what are you guys? So I finally kind of asked somebody, I was like, well, so what's the deal with Ronald Reagan? And they're like, oh, well, you know, like, just all the like military and the, the oppression that he brought on Nicaragua. And I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And so then they started to tell me like, basically like the story of Nicaragua is it was run by like American backed dictator and it provided us like beef, super cheap and like a bunch of different resources, super cheap. And, but that was like, it was a nasty right wing dictator. And so they overthrew that dictator via socialism. Um, well, I mean, they used the terms, but their socialism was was Christian socialism. It was like very strongly Christian. One of the main people is Ernesto Cardinal. He's like a Catholic priest, liberation theology. Heard of that? And was he
0: the guy that got gunned and, down?
1: Um, no, that was a little. It was the same time period, um, that, well, there was like nine priests in the eighties that were killed by us sponsored, um, things. And one of them is this guy named Oscar Romero, who was killed while he was doing, um, mass. And it was a squad, a Salvadorian squad, death squad, they call it the Atlacatl battalion or something. And they had just come from training in North Carolina. The first thing they did is they went to this church and shot a priest, killed him. Um, And so they started telling me like, but the way they talked about Reagan was like, he was Hitler, you know? And because um, the Christian socialists overthrew the like right wing, the, the, his name was Somoza. You can look it up. Um, They overthrew him. But that meant that socialism now had like a foothold in the Western hemisphere, which is like the Monroe doctrine is basically anytime anything kind of socialist happened, the United States like went in and intervened. Um, And so I think something like he couldn't directly intervene or whatever. So Mm -hmm. what he did actually, he illegally sold weapons to Iran and then, basically took that money and funded these Hondurans to terrorize the Christian socialists in Nicaragua. And so I stayed with these people and they they told me, oh yeah, you know, like every, we lived in the woods for 10 years during the 80s because every year people would come from Honduras and attack our village. We didn't know when it would happen, but every year it happened for like basically all the 80s because Ronald Reagan was like, paying the Hondurans to come. They wanted to like reinstate this dictator so that the United States could get like the cheap beef, the cheap like um, resources and stuff. And they didn't want socialism. Um, so we'd have that conversation. I'd stay with these people for like two or three nights and we'd have that conversation. And then we'd also have the Christian conversation where like they had like Christian, everything everywhere in their house. And they're like praying all the time and like doing this like full on, very Christian and for them, what socialism meant is that he ran the co-op for, like, the community. Everybody took all their, like, extra vegetables, and you could just go and basically exchange vegetables. At the, It was, like, very idyllic. It, they were poor, of course, but, like, manicured, like, old school. They didn't have running water, but it was, like, a beautiful little ranchito, you know? Um, coffee farmers, uh, like... I mean, I'm sure I saw the best of it. I'm sure they had problems as well, but um, just a beautiful community, strongly Christian, so, strongly socialist, and socialist for them just meant that they shared their excess resources and that nobody like had like exploitative um, and then this uh, exploitative like economic relations. So, so if it you was know, they, that didn't that didn't fly.
0: If it was voluntary, then what? Like, where did the government come into that? Like, why did it matter what the government did?
1: Um, It was more like, you know, we say government, but what it really meant was more like community. So they were friends with all the other ranchers. And I'm sure, like, you know, probably there was some rancher that, like, wanted to. um, I mean, maybe somebody wanted to return back to the Somoza days, you know, the days when the that dictator was in charge because there were some people getting wealthy off of that, you know, it wasn't like whatever. And so like when they overthrew it, it was, it's really, it's a government of the people, by the people and for the people, at least in that particular context. I don't think, especially now, and actually Ernesto Cardinal, like ended up flipping on this guy, Daniel Ortega has been the leader for like 25 years or something like that and that particular priest that i was mentioning he was pro ortega in the early 90s and then i think it was like in the mid-2000s he was like this is it's not it's not what this isn't like what the revolution was about like you're becoming a little bit too oppressive or you know and so recently they've had some issues um and maybe ortega you know the the absolute power got to his head but it's also like i think in that particular region esteli is the name of the little town that i was in miraflor um i don't know that he has particularly a lot of power there it's like it's it's much more community run um so like the government is the community you know it's like the farmers in the area get together and and i'm sure like if if you want to have an expo- like a <laughs> if you want to exploit somebody like you're if you can't get it past like that community board or whatever you're probably not gonna be well received you know um so i mean i can imagine how it could be oppressive but um in that situation like it it didn't seem like it to me i'm sure like it's possible but then like to like have all these uh, like they were very pious people. Um, and my, my, my friend that I was with was from Israel and they were so fascinated with him because like, Oh my gosh, you're from the Holy land. Like, tell us about the Holy land. Like we have a picture of Jerusalem right here. You know, we, we, we read the Bible every day. And so we're reading about where you're from and like, tell us everything about it. And, and we did like at night I was a translator, you know, I was speaking Spanish and like, we were translating all the things he was saying about Israel. Um, and uh, so it's like, they were not faking their Christianity. And for them, like socialism was really all about the food co-op pretty much the food co-op and like not exploitative labor relations, which is like what existed before. Like it was basically a, a Lord insert. It was a right wing thing. had plantation owners that like you know they paid the people nothing and if they rebelled and they would just kill the people um or whatever so they they it was like you know Karl Marx said workers of the world unite and so that's what happened is like the plantation people united they overthrew their like exploitative people and then they like basically redistributed land but it's also not like like another like funny myth about communism or whatever is that um, it's anti-ownership. Um, these people definitely own their ranches, you know. Um, and I was just reading actually home ownership in Cuba, because we were talking like in the background, we're talking about Cuba. Home ownership in Cuba is over 90%, 90%, over 90% of the people there own their homes. Another thing that I also read about the Soviet Union is that, like, not long after the, um, their revolution, they, like, broke up the land into small farms and gave ownership to people. So, and I haven't gone deep into this, but I think the, like, anti-private property thing in in the Communist Manifesto is more about, like, um the means of production, right? So like a factory that should not be privately owned. That should be owned by the workers is like, is, a, is what they're, what they're talking about. They're not talking about like your house, you know, now if you yeah. own 3000 houses or something, that would be an issue. Yeah. And there's also the other thing that like kind of reframed everything is that there's not like one single communism. Like it's definitely communism's, and socialisms, there's like many versions. So in Nicaragua, you, at least at some part, some part of Nicaragua, you had a Christian socialism, that's, and it still is that in name. I don't know. They currently have different kinds of problems than they did 20 years ago, even when I was there five years ago.
0: Yeah, there was, I wish I had it in front of me right now, but there was a, a great quote in John Perkins. Uh, John Perkins has a book. Uh, he, was like, he was a black leader during civil rights and stuff. Um, and he has a great quote where he's talking about how like, um, basically like when he went to get a job and he was offered lower than he could, than he thought was fair. He's like, well, what was I going to do about it? Because, you know, he had, he had the means of, uh, of work and, and the, the work available. So he's like, there's, I, I couldn't barter with them. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Right. And, um, you know, that was under, that was under capitalism. Yeah, for sure. So there are, um, there are three experiences that started me rethinking how bad communism is. And so I know that everybody points to like Venezuela Mm. or, um, you know, Soviet Russia and and how that's really terrible. And we we can maybe talk about that that later. But so going to Romania, you know, I started to ask people, Mm. you know, like, so what did what did you think of communism? And I was I was just like shocked by the amount of old people. It, it was usually older people, like 50 plus. And they'd be like, oh, we miss it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they hate the degradation of the society, like their kids, um, uh, and, and like their materialism and and all that stuff. And um how they don't like take care of things, like pick up trash and stuff, because it's you know, it's it's not theirs they and they said well at least under communism i we had like i didn't have to worry about where i was going to live and i didn't have to worry about having a job and so that's hard for me to stomach cuz i also know that under communism there were people like richard wormbrand being um tortured and like there were horrendous things but it was it was still shocking to me that that people would rather live under communism. Another, another uh, thing that kind of started me thinking was um, I was reading, reading a book called Negroes with Guns, and um, this yeah. guy who's a, who's a really good friend with Rosa Parks, I forget his name off the top of my head, but um, he basically just, like, defended his community. He's like, "We're white people are going to come and attack us. We're going to defend ourselves. And they didn't even shoot any white people. They just shot oh. towards them to scare them away. Well, all of a sudden the FBI is coming after him and where does he escape? But he escapes to Cuba and he's like, Hey, I was treated really well in Cuba. And I was like, what wow. Cuba? I thought they were like, I mean, <sighs> horrible people. Um, and so that, yeah. that kind of got me thinking again. And then I was reading a a, a third book, uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. And it was written by this African guy. I forget which country. And of course he ended up being assassinated because then everybody who espouses socialism against the empire ends up being assassinated. Um, so this guy, he was just giving kind of a history of Africa and um, you know all these companies like I think it was Michelin or Goodyear, but like all these companies that basically got big from taking rubber, taking all these plants, you know, um, all, all these resources out of Africa. And he was talking about I think it was apartheid South Africa, but he was talking about how the, Cub- the Cubans actually sent like tens of thousands of soldiers to help. Um, was it Angola fighting Angola? It was, it was something, but Cubans were sending people to defend um, against the, the like, I don't know, the oppressive regime. And you're like, man, that's like Cuba is not, is not what I like. They're fighting for human rights. They are accepting black people. And um, you know, embracing human rights. People are saying that they actually miss communism in this place where it used to be. Um, And then, and then your experience. So, so I want that to lead into your experience. And you told me that on one of your trips, you met some people from Cuba.
1: Oh yeah. And I just like also second that (laughs) It's funny because in Nicaragua, like, I wasn't even, like, asking. And they were like, oh, we know that you're not like Ronald Reagan. It's okay. It's okay. You know, like, we're not upset at you. You're not, you know. Like, and I was not, like, bringing up anything. It's just as soon as I said United States. Like, we know that you're not like Ronald Reagan. Okay. And in Germany, I lived in East Germany. And I I feel like whenever I'd ask somebody, like, how how old are you? Or Or, like, I don't know, somehow, like, East Germany would come up. And then immediately they would go into the, like, is it better now or was it better then? And they'd be like, if they were young, they'd be like, "Mm, I think it's better now. But, you know, there was no homeless people back then. And, like, another friend was, like, was telling me, she's like, you know how, like, everybody's all about, like, this whole organic thing? Like, everything you want it to be organic and, like, locally farmed and all this stuff. And she's like, do you know what we had under communism? all locally farmed organic food, you know, <laughs> and she's like, we didn't have bananas, but we had like, everything else was like, it, it, that was the thing like in Germany that they were like shipping bananas into West Berlin in particular. And, and so East Germans were like, man, I wish we had a banana, but like the government, the community, the government, whatever, decided that they, they wouldn't spend money for bananas. Um, so yes, a lot of people in East Germany, they, they, also, they also say the same thing, like, yeah, it's kind of maybe better under communism, um, which was mind-blowing to me, mind-blowing. Um, but when I was working in the humanitarian field, um, I think it was in Dominica and Haiti in particular. Dominica is like an island, that's sort of near Venezuela. Um, ton, a ton of uh, Cuban doctors. And a bunch of the Haitian, like higher level Haitian people that I met, um, many, there was like, I met like two or three Haitian doctors. And I was like, oh, so like, where'd you go to, like, where'd you go to med school? And like, Cuba. And I'm like, what do you, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you can, like, we can go to Cuba. And like, you know, they sponsor people to go to their colleges to, to, especially health you know medicine and study this stuff and i'm just like what the heck and then yeah like you know there'd be like a truckload of like nurses and doctors that are like on their way to some hospital and there's like a little cuban flag on the side and you're like oh it's the cubans you know and you're like the cubans are here (laughs) and i read somewhere also um I think it was a Chilean, I think it might have been like Pinochet actually, that said said something about human rights, this human rights discourse is really just a Marxist ploy to get into the government or something. And I was like, I started to see this thing differently because also the communists they started to meet were like all about human rights, you know, and all about when I met especially, like, socialists, I guess, in the, like, Berlin context, um, they were all about human rights. Oh, it would be like, okay, so they're upset at liberals. They don't like liberals. Socialists, communists, they don't like liberals. Because liberals, what they'll say is, like, okay, you just want, like, a a female bomber pilot. Or, um... (laughs) you know, a gay person in charge of the police or something. And, um, so you take like these identity issues and this, like socialists don't like these identity issues because like Cornell West will often say, like, it's not about having like black faces in high places. Um, so like, sure. Obama was like a big symbolic victory, but was he actually for the people? And Especially Cornel West is very critical of Obama. Um, but, like, socialists and communists in general, for them, Obama was just like, so, many say worse. I think Noam Chomsky, in particular, who's an anarchist, um, says that Obama was worse than Bush. Um, I don't think he's, he doesn't, he definitely does not identify as a Marxist. Um, he's, but he's a, He's an anarchist, I believe. I believe uh, Chomsky is. I've heard him called so something. I, I found I, a lot of camaraderie with.
0: Yeah, I think I think he. My friend said he's a minarchist, or I don't know. There's some like combination of stuff that he said he was. I don't remember.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like. It gets so niche. <laughs> it's like it really is. Like I think it. It comes down to like. I guess. Socialism in particular means workers owning the means of production, which as I started to dig into it more, that's like also like family owned and operated businesses. Socialist, like socialist people like that. Um, They don't like the Walton family who has like exploitative labor relations. um, Who's... um, workers have to like get or can get government subsistence. They would say, no, like Walmart shouldn't exist. It should be like, we might have to take some steps back. You know, we might have to, we might not be able to have like Amazon or something. We might have to go to local farming so that we don't have these like exploitative labor relations. Um, But they would much rather go that way um than they would into any kind of like exploitative but that's
0: that's where it becomes an issue for me because um you know when you're talking about systems it's like okay but you know talking about Nicaragua well okay they're going to redistribute the land but now somebody's got to go and basically take that by force or uh well Waltons shouldn't have their their business to that extent or Amazon shouldn't so Mm -hmm. somebody's got to legislate or go take that by force and um you know as opposed to a free market where well i i choose to work for amazon or i choose and i i know it's more complex than that because obviously like some of these businesses they get as big as they are because they get these tax breaks and they get subsidies and they so it's much more of a mess than the free market and i think that's what some some of my one of my friends is helping me to see is that um so the story that he tells is It's like, okay, well, after 9-11, you've got got airline subsidies because the government doesn't want these airlines to go out of business. They provide jobs. Well, in Atlanta, which is a big hub for Delta, that subsidy was about to run up and uh, run out. And Delta says, hey, don't let that subsidy run out for us because if you do, we're out of here. Well, so then the government continues that subsidy, but they do so only for Delta. And now other airlines go out of business because, so Delta gets bigger because they absorb some of the other airlines and they're able to have lower prices, which, which isn't real market value. And, um, so like that, that's a lot of, a lot of what we see. So I I understand that it's more complex than that, but my issue with communism or socialism is then like, who's going to go take it Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, how do you feel about George Washington?
0: I I mean I dis, just I disagree
1: Is George Washington.
0: No, I disagree with the American <laughs> Revolution. Disagree. Oh yeah, for sure.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah,
0: one hundred percent.
1: And then the other thing would be like ending slavery. You know, like slaves were property, and it was it took violence to end that.
0: Yeah, but see, I would I would disagree with that too. So reading reading some of the CRT stuff, you know, they're like, look legislation obviously doesn't change things like it changes things on the surface. So, okay. Violence got rid of slavery, but why, why were they willing to have a war at that point? Well, because I mean, England was already abolishing slavery because they had found substitute plants and and things that like the markets were changing. The industries were changing with, with factories. You needed more, more manual labor. You know, some of these things were kind of the cotton gin was coming up, so you you were getting these, um, these machines that were able to supplement, so they could afford to lose slavery. Um, but what did they yep. do? They ended up basically keeping slavery through sharecropping. Well, okay, you eventually give give blacks the right to vote, but what do you do? You disenfranchise the vote by having the war on drugs and by cutting cutting mental health support, so that now you can. Throw drug addicts and mental health patients in in jail, and then you disenfranchise their vote. Um, so like time and time again, you see you see that where there's legislation that seems to do some good, you have this counter thing where where it it undermines that or the trend was already going up anyway, and legislation just kind of comes yeah. so that the government appears to be the savior. So I don't. I mean, I, I think slavery would have would have gone out anyway. Um, it might have taken a little bit longer, but maybe you then wouldn't have had uh, the sharecropping and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I've read that, like um, in the Re- Reconstruction era, like the Northern Army was still occupying the South, and that was kind of keeping things like the reconstruction was sort of happening, I guess, for like, I, I, I want to say until like 1876 or something. So it was like 1863. Was that when the civil emancipation proclamation The 64, I think the war kind of ended mostly. Um, so like for 12 years, you had like a Northern army occupation of the South, but then there was some kind of stalemate in like the voting and so the North agreed to pull the military out of the South. And so then that allowed like reconstruction basically ended at that point. Um, I don't know what I'm saying, but I am guess I'm saying like that maybe the, it was kind of the violence that kept it on track for a little while. Um,
0: yeah, I guess, I guess and and so also, I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would just say that, I mean, we're, we're 150 years past that and we're still dealing with things. Now, yeah. maybe we would have anyway, right. but and, and I don't know that much history about England, but there's, their slavery dissipated more organically. Um, they started to institute mm-hmm. that. And I don't think you, s- you have seen near the problems that you see in our culture. So, okay, we, we end it by violence maybe sooner than it would have ended but if we would have ended it more organically by the people, would that have influenced long-term? And I I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but I think critical race theory is kind of identifying that legislation doesn't do, violence doesn't do what what people think that it does because we keep having these problems Mm. even after all these stages of legislation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean yeah yeah and i I guess i would the other question i would say like with regards to violence i mean like i do think that non-violence is the better way and especially like if you have a non-violent revolution then it means like because the american uh, nation i was gonna say empire whatever but because we were founded on violence it means that like violence is basically an acceptable way you know Um, like you're rare, I think saying that George Washington, you know, that you don't agree with George Washington, like, so then that means that like, if somebody's pissed off, if there's taxation without representation, then it is okay to like freaking revolt, you know, just like the founding fathers did. But if you found on Jesus, a nonviolent revolutionary, um, then you don't have to agree with the George Washington, you know? Um, And if we had a nation that was overthrown non-violently, then we would say, no, we are like a, we are a genuinely peace loving nation. Like we don't even, our revolution, we don't even do violence, you know? Um, So I'm with, I'm, I'm with you on that, but I also think that it's, it's kind of in the, it's the powerful people that decide, whether or not they're going to allow a peaceful change or not, you know. And uh, JFK said that he said, uh, "Those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable." Yeah. So I don't, did, <laughs> was there a question? I can't remember where how we got how I got to that. But yeah,
0: I don't know. I I think it'll be
1: legislating. Legislation is violence. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Communists. You know, I I don't like the the aspect of. Mm. Communi- like
1: Who's gonna take yeah.
0: Or or force that viewpoint. Who's gonna
1: now. go take the land?
0: Yeah, and, and who determines how much is, is the, too much land and who determines uh what's exploitative.
1: Um I was just about to say Bill Gates is the he owns more farmland than anybody else in the world. Like this like it just happened last year. I think he went on a buying spree and started buying a whole bunch of land. So yeah, he owns more farms than anybody in the world. No. It's kind of a weird thing. Computer guy being on yeah. of farmland.
0: So, um, let me switch. So we talked a little bit about, about communism and how it uh you know, it it maybe isn't the demon that everybody paints it out to be and and we could maybe talk about some of the specific examples later that people like to throw around. Um, but what about so so let's talk a little bit about capitalism now so communism might be better than people think it is but capitalism isn't the saint i don't think that people think it is so now i've heard i've heard people talk about um when when i say that capitalism is messed up like it's really bad what they say is that um no it's not really capitalism like i was giving the the uh the point about delta and the subsidies they'd say it's not capitalism that's issue. it's not the free market what it is is the government intervention in the free market. When the banks screwed up, the government should have let the banks go. When the the auto industry screwed up and overextended, the government should have let them fail. So what we really have is um, a pandering to the the wealthy and and government propping up things. Um, if if we had a truly free market, no subsidies um, would be good. And when you when you add on top of this the the Keynesian economic system, which is we have to always buy more and consume and consume. I mean that leads to i mean just really bad habits, but also exploitation where you're you're trying to take people for as as much as you can. so what would you say? Do you think that capitalism free market is is bad in and of itself and communism's a a good alternative, or do you think that a free market is the best thing
1: um yeah, I don't think the free market, I don't think the free market has what it needs to reform itself. And the reason I say that is mostly, I mean, I was a libertarian for, uh, for 10 years, basically, actually, when I went to Cedarville, <laughs> I don't know, like somebody, somebody pointed out what you're saying, you know, like Republicans are bigger government than Democrats, even especially like with military spending and stuff. This is, this is like, we say we're against big government, but we're just dump, we're just Republicans are bigger than Democrats in in many cases. Um, And so like it took about like, you know, two conversations was like, I'm a libertarian, you know, like a Ron Paul or whatever. It did that for 10 years. And then I started to see, I guess, the way Amazon was and Walmart were just running rampant over small businesses and how many like, I I love bookstores, right? I love being able to go to a local bookstore, and like basically everywhere I was going, all the bookstores were closing down because they couldn't compete with the online of Amazon and, or same thing like Walmart, you know? And and then like people would go like, then they have to get these like kind of crappy jobs that don't quite pay enough. So then I'm like, what is the libertarian going to do regarding Jeff Bezos? nothing you know like let him let him do whatever he wants and then then recently i came across the like haymarket affair do you know about the haymarket affair no. Haymarket riot uh so cyrus j mccormick senior start senior he started the like uh cotton harvesting uh a harvester i think it was for i think it was for cotton but he he generated one of these things and then he Brought all these work, he you know, started selling them all over the place. Everybody loved him. This was in the 1870s, 80s, maybe earlier, maybe the 60s. Um, and became really successful selling them all over the place. He sent his son to Princeton to study economics. Um and things were going great. His son came back, like, hey man, yeah, efficiency, let's like make this better and all this stuff. And the workers got so good that they basically they were working six days a week 10 hours a day in the 1880s and they started to say hey why don't we have an eight-hour workday instead of a 10-hour workday because we don't like we can accomplish everything in eight hours we're we're good now we're fast like we know what we're doing we're just cranking these things out and mccormick senior was like well you know we'll talk about it maybe just like whatever he didn't change anything he died, I think it was 1884, and then it was 1886 that Cyrus McCormick, Jr., you know, they were like starting to make more of a fuss, like, hey, eight hours, eight hours, eight hours, like, let's not do this 10-hour thing anymore. We don't need all the Like, we could go home, build our families. We could, like, invest in the community or whatever, and McCormick was like, we could do that, or I could fire half of you and more profit for me, and so that's what he did. He fired half of them and the other half, he dropped their pay by 10% because he's like, you're lucky you have a job. So I'm going to pay you less. In a year that he made a big profit the year before, you know, he totally could pay the 10 hours, six days a week, whatever. He, he totally could pay that. He's making all this money and now, but now he's making more money. And so the, the people freaked out like this is not right. This should not be allowed. And but McCormick was wealthy, and so he just like paid the people he needed to. He told the people in the newspaper, he's like, "Yeah, these are just angry workers. This is just the way it is. Free market, you know. This is just the way it is. I'm sorry, what you you guys feel entitled to me, you know. He all the same arguments that we hear today. And um, so then and like they were, you know, making a fuss, and I think the half they ended up quitting. They said, we're not going to work for you because this is ridiculous. And there's striking, they had strike breakers coming in. There's like a little violence here and there. And so McCormick basically told his friends of the police said, Hey, these guys are troublemakers, whatever. And so they started like the protest. They would come in and they, they like May 3rd, 1886. So May 1st was international day of the worker. And that, that's like, you know, May day or whatever. And that's what this was all about. It actually is related to this moment, even. Um, but they had a following protest. There was so many people, I can't remember the numbers, but a lot of people in Chicago, 1883, no, it was 1886, May 3rd, police come shoot like four people following day. They meet up and they're like, okay, <laughs> some people were like, bring your guns. Some people were like, no, we're doing this nonviolent, not like whatever. And so they had like these talks these talks, the police came in to end the protest. Somebody threw a bomb. Policemen died. They rounded up, they knew who the leaders were of like the workers, rounded up the eight leaders, hung four of them immediately. Seven of them were not even at the event. Hung four of them immediately. The other four sat in prison for like um, seven years or something. And um, meanwhile, Cyrus McCormick Jr. is like, man, the town hates me. I need to like do something about this. Who's that? Dwight Moody? Come on over here. I wanted to sponsor you. You want a Bible Institute? Bam, done. I just want you to go around. I want you to train like Christian workers. And so Dwight Moody's like, cool. Christian workers? Great. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Like I've been blessed by God. He's like, you've been blessed by God. You have money. You've been blessed by God. So, and I can't believe these Loud, angry workers. There's, oh, you're right; they are ungrateful and just bad. Look at how like disruptive they are. You know, I can't believe they're so disruptive. And so then, that's how Moody Bible Institute got started was by Cyrus McCormick Jr. trying to rehabilitate his image. And every time Moody spoke, he had all the wealthy businessmen behind him, and he would like it was basically like if you work hard and live a moral life and do what I say, you could be like them. Because God has blessed them. And so this is something I want to write about with my master's degree. But who's going to rein in Cyrus McCormick Jr.? Because when labor gets better, you'd want to give them more agency. But what ends up happening is, you know, we have this desire to cut the cost of labor. And so who's going to, like... So if, and actually, he the people he rehired, he gave them an eight-hour workday. Um, McCormick Jr., he decided, okay, fine. The next group that I hire, I'll give them an eight-hour work workday. So the old people, they did not get it. Um, in fact, a lot of them got killed. And like this was also like how Chicago, in many ways, started to go downhill at this point. Because all of a sudden, you had all these people out of jobs. And he wasn't the only one doing it. McCormick Jr., it uh, was all kinds of industrialist people. And it wasn't until really like the new deal, um, Franklin Roosevelt that anything changed. Um, yeah. So that's the thing is like, it's not natural for us to care about the labor. It's just a bottom line for the owners. So you like, we're supposed to rely on like human nature which is funny because I'm like, this is why people told me, Oh, Marx, you didn't think about human nature. And it's like, I think I'm not a capitalist because of, we're not thinking about human nature. I mean, human nature of this like top 1%, you know? Yeah. That's,
0: that's how I feel about government Mm -hmm. too. Like, uh, you know, being reformed. I mean, a lot of people don't know that, or don't think about the reformation was like our. My group is called the magisterial reformers. And, magisterium is is just like you know basically politics and so it was it was this marrying of of church and state and so i'm thinking so we believe that people are totally depraved and so what we do is we give depraved people power of the sword like you know we're, we're gonna give this group of depraved people extreme extreme power over all of these other people and it's like, yeah, like you said, I mean, you say you you say that the other side doesn't consider human nature, but um, it seems like we do just as bad stuff with it or just as oblivious.
1: Yeah. And like, I, I don't have you, there's a one talk that really helped me was Richard Wolf's what, or socialism for dummies. And he explains that Marx and company really liked the French Revolution, which was liberty, equality, fraternity. But then they were like, um, this system that we have now, where we just let the wealthiest people decide what happens, they were like, that's not going to bring us liberty, equality, fraternity. And we're going to have to basically, we're going to have to get to the point where workers own the means of production. You know, like every the, everything is a worker owned co-op basically, you know, in today's language. That's what we're going to have to get to. And in order to do that, we're going to have to do all this stuff. But um, but they were like, they realized that this the system was isolating people. And so they said, what should we call this new system? We should call it socialism, a belief in society. Like we prioritize society. And the current one, what it's doing is it's prioritizing private wealth. It's saying that like whoever has the most accumulated wealth we trust you. We believe in you. But he's like saying like, we're going to have to switch it. And we're going to have to believe in society. We're going to have to believe in all people. So even the person who said of the people, by the people, for the people, Abraham Lincoln, he's quoting this guy, Theodore Parker. Theodore Parker is like a serious reader of Hegel, which is where Marx gets a lot of his ideas. Um, So even the American version of, of the people, by the people, for the people, um. that's kind of, it's it's a Hegelian idea. It's a Marxist idea. Um, but it was an American, not Karl Marx, who was saying this. Um, an, an American who probably had some affinities with Karl Marx. But um, he's also the person who said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Oh, so Martin Luther King was quoting okay. Theodore Parker.
0: Huh. I didn't know that. Um okay so so maybe kind of to to round this out a little bit i know that one of the one of the common things that you hear is um i mean i see this all the time just about um look how look how good communism or socialism works out and they point to venezuela they point to um the the soviet union what um you know it's like everywhere communism is tried socialism is tried it's found wanting like it, it just screws up society. Mm-hmm. And, and I think even, I don't remember if it was Marx himself that said it in uh, the communist manifesto manifesto or whatever, but like communism, essentially it has to be preceded by capitalism, right? So you have to build up the capital for communism or socialism to work, which seems kind of, kind of hypocritical to say, well, Capitalism is a bad thing, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of ride on its its uh, coattails. So anyway, talk talk about um, yeah all of the bad examples we see.
2: Yeah, so um, I guess there's three things that immediately come to mind. I didn't super prepare for this, but obviously it's a question that like I had myself because, like I said, I was a libertarian for 10 years, and before that I was just like conservative Republican. Doctrine: All Democrats are totalitarian. I also thought Marx and Hitler were the same thing, which now I can't believe that that was that I like that people actually think that. But um, so three things: the one first, fast, easy one, maybe not the main one, but it's like these are nations and they have like normal problems, you know, like just because all of a sudden you're socialist or capitalist it doesn't mean that you're like, you know, if you have a lawn mowing business and your lawn mower breaks, it doesn't have anything to do with your labor relations, you know, like, but they're, you know, so there, there's those kind of issues um, from time to time. That's a small thing, but just something to remember that like whatever system you have, you're still going to have like natural disasters that have make like, issues. Um, the second thing... Is that I um, know I'm like forgetting like what were the three that I saw. but the second thing, and the biggest one in Latin America in particular, but also like African nations, basically any developing nation has this issue. Um, like Cuba, they've had an embargo from the United States, same as Venezuela. Um, the United States has basically told like any country like we will not if you work with Cuba, we will also not work with you. So people are like, okay, we can either work with the United States or we can work with Cuba. We're working with the United States. You know, it's like way more advantageous. Like we get Apple computers. We get, you know, uh, all kinds of benefits from the United, from trading with the United States. And their stipulation is don't work with Cuba. So I think Red just something recently that like, uh, um, Well, Cuba can't get a whole bunch of like, they they have a ton of doctors, right? They're like, what they did is like, they super invested in the things that everybody uses. So healthcare, education, um, and food actually, they have like food rations. So like nobody goes hungry and like housing, they also have like, everybody's housed, no homeless people in Cuba.
0: Yeah. And their, their infant mortality rate is like insanely low. Yeah. And and the U S is, is actually pretty high.
2: Yeah, I actually just saw a stat. I did a little bit of research today. Um, 177 people per like 100,000 or something die of cancer in the United States. In, the, in Cuba, it's 144. It's lower. Um, basically, all their like healthcare stats are better in the United States. Um, and then they're like, people always talk about like the Cuban literacy rate is like before before the revolution, hardly anybody could read. After the revolution, everybody can read. Like they just dumped money into education and said, "Hey, you know, this, this is kind of a cheap thing to like get people busy reading, and we, you know, you can do that." So they did that. They launched a literacy campaign, and and I think like it's funny, like Biden and Bernie Sanders and stuff. They like they said, "Yeah, you know, like Cuba, like their literacy rate shot to the roof," and then like all these people, like, "Oh my gosh, you're a communist!" You know, like freaking out and. They're like, can we not like, reading is okay.
0: (laughs) So why, why are so many people trying to leave Cuba? Why do you have people who are willing to leave on a raft to get to
2: Florida? So because of the embargo, um, because they're not able to trade with anybody. And so Cuba did want to trade with the United States and did say like, Hey, let's, um, you know, work together or whatever. But the United States, said, no, we're not gonna work with you and we're going to um, penalize anyone who does work with you. So even like Puerto Rico, who has traditionally been connected to Cuba, um, is basically not allowed to work with Cuba anymore. So they're totally cut off from the rest of the world. So That's why they reached out to the Soviet Union. And I mean, they had affinities anyways, because their political model was similar. But they started trading with Soviet Union and then the United States really freaked out because that means the Soviet Union could like put missiles on Cu- Cu- the island of Cuba, which is only 90 miles from Miami. Um, so the United States like has just cut them off. Um, I think after like Barack Obama restored relations with them, they were like, Hey, why don't we, um, put like a big cable? under the ocean so that we can have internet you know and like our people can have internet a better internet all this stuff and the united states is like no we're not going to do it Uh, like we won't allow this or whatever and then turns around to criticize them saying look at cuba they don't have internet you know like (laughs) they're trying to you know it's not like they're not trying you know but it's like you guys and the same thing with venezuela is like the United States won't allow anybody to work with Venezuela. And so Venezuela was also having issues with like their oil stuff because the United States like would penalize anyone who took Venezuela oil. Like, okay, you know, we're not going to work with, um, work with you. I think with, with Cuba, I just read that, um, they said that any ship that has docked in Cuba over the last six months cannot dock in the United States. That's like a rule that they have. So they're trying to starve off communism with these like embargo things. And this is the case in all of Latin America, but then also like, you know, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Um, I think the real issue was that Saddam Hussein wanted to nationalize their oil. So he's basically unionizing their oil saying like, no, you don't get to work with like a few rich families like in Saudi Arabia you have like the whole nation of iraq is we're going to decide at what like rate we're going to sell you oil and the united states is like well if you do that then like saudi arabia might do that and iran might kuwait might do like they might get some ideas and so this is like a project for especially the bushes who are like oil family they were like we're going to blow you up now because because you wanted your oil to work for the for a bigger you know you wanted to unionize your oil. So yeah, cuz gonna...
0: it's insane like uh, Chomsky Chomsky um and like for for wh- whether you hate Chomsky or love Chomsky you can you can verify a lot of the things that he says. Mm-hmm. And so I remember he said some of the things about like we were friends with Saddam Hussein like right before we went in and attacked him. And like sure enough you can see see like Bush senior praising him um you can see them like going to meet him and like buddy buddy and then all of a sudden they're not like we we sell them things we give them things and then we go kill them yeah Uh, yeah it's it's just it's insane and um you, you mentioned the the missiles like you know uh russia being able to bring missiles into cuba i i also learned it's like well part of part of how we were able to to back russia off is we had missiles in Turkey aimed at Russia. And so we were able to, so it's not fair for them to have missiles close to us, but like we put our stuff right in their back door, right across the black sea. It's just insane how hypocritical we are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I see like these pictures of like Iran in particular. So Iran, they're like, and they say like, why did Iran put their country so close to all our military bases? You know, because like if you look at Iran and U.S. military bases, surrounded with U.S. military bases, you know, and I think Richard Wolf, like anybody can go like look him up on YouTube because he responds to this in much more detail, and he says something about like Soviet Union was invaded like several times by the Western powers; they never invaded. Um, like they were not the aggressor, the aggressor, we were the aggressor, Um, and he, you know, he says it, like Chomsky, he names it, like a little more factual, like I I haven't memorized the the facts of all this stuff, but um, the Nicaragua thing, I looked into pretty, pretty seriously, and that was, I mean, that was a pretty big disenchantment moment, I feel like you know, people always told in the conservative world. They always told me, like, yeah, you know, you got to read and do your research. And then I like started and like you know <laughs> travel and talk to people and like broaden your horizon. And then like I did that, and then I'm like, I'm a freaking communist now. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I'm, and that's I think the difference between socialist and communist is is a little bit funky, but. I think it was in the like 1920s Germany that this like the distinction became serious and the distinction was the communists were willing to be violent or work illegally and the socialists wanted to work within the system but they had like the same basic thing and of course the Nazis were anti-socialist anti-communist uh, Martin Niemoller he has the poem, first they came for the, I was not them. I didn't do anything. And then they came for me. It's first they came for the socialists, which was like a mind bender for me because I thought that it was national socialism. I was always told it's national socialism, you know. But that was a word at the time. It's kind of like democracy is now that like everybody says it's democracy. Like you have Jay Gresham Machen saying, I'm all about democracy and individual rights. And then you're like, "But whose individual rights? <laughs> oh only yours <laughs> that's totalitarianism, you know, like not democracy um so I uh, forgot how we got there also, but um
0: yeah, I think um Russia. you know something else i I realized after reading um it, how how europe um underdeveloped africa i I started to realize this whole capitalism versus versus communism thing. So the embargo thing was definitely a big deal. Like, well, you, you basically cut off the life support of all these other countries. Of course, they're going to go be poor because everybody wants to trade with you. But the other thing is, I mean, if you think about it, like for 300 years ago, Europeans, we, we basically came into this land flowing with milk and honey. we, we, just gobbled up all of these resources and then we imported slaves and resources from these other people that we could exploit we economically exploited south americans and 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 all kinds of stuff so basically it would be like me moving into a mansion and having everybody in the town where the mansion is like bring all their crap and put it inside my house and then like freeze time and say all right guys look how good i'm doing my yeah. system works yeah. now you guys go ahead and uh why are you doing so poorly yeah and so cuz cause, cause we th- we think that capitalism uh, uh, our our system is just like this this huge work ethic like we just did all this good stuff but we don't realize we we snatched up a mansion and we 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 sucked dry these other places um and I yeah I just don't think it's a fair comparison right. at all.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Like I was like I was gonna say like I think well Eugene Debs who's kind of like the main American socialist there ever was back in like the 1910s 1920s he was asked one time what is socialism or he was actually just giving a speech he said what is socialism merely Christianity in action. And so it's like my Christian values are what like make me a socialist. Um, and and I mean, this, the main socialist organization in the United States is called the Democratic Socialist of America and they put democratic in the name to signal that they're opposing authoritarian socialism. So it's like this idea that like socialism is the government doing something is like, and the other thing I didn't say about, but the bar, that bar in, in Potsdam, Germany, in East Germany, that like totally like was like, what I'd found, I can't remember if I learned it was a communist bar or what, but it it was a bar and it had this huge banner across the top of it. It said, never trust the government. I was like, wait a minute! I thought communism was the government, you know. And so then I had to like basically have conversations with a whole bunch of people and do a lot of like you know reading and stuff, and starting to realize that like communists were actually like th- the French Revolution. Like they love the French Revolution. They love the like liberty. They Marx loved that like uh Lincoln ended slavery, loved it because he was about the workers having agency. You know, like he's about regular people having rights he's saying that like under the capitalist system cyrus mccormick jr jeff bezos can do whatever they want with their labor but then we're going to create a system that like the workers own the means of production it's worker-owned co-ops today you know that's what it looks like even reagan like had great things to say about worker-owned co-ops and in that sense like the united states is more socialist than most places because i think it has more worker-owned co-ops not that many but it has more than um many other places so most of us i think are actually socialists we just don't realize it and this whole like i want to you know like i (laughs) i don't want to work and have the government take my money it's like well do you want? to work and have jeff bezos take your money then or because that's what's happening you know like you're working and you're having your like employer take your money you know
0: yeah but but i i give it to him when i want to order stuff on amazon
2: oh yeah yeah we like amazon and it's cool you know like that's the other thing is like no like keep amazon but like work around amazon <laughs> You know, and maybe okay, maybe it wouldn't be as efficient, but it's like I would take a human rights over efficiency. I don't care if like you know my chair that I ordered takes ten days to get here instead of two. Like I'll deal with that. Like let's let the workers be a little more respected. You know? Yeah. Let's.
0: Well, I mean, I I think that's the problem. We're we're consumerists. Um, yeah. And materialists, and so. Yeah, I, I choose I choose convenience and price oftentimes over Yeah. Yeah. So it's even it's okay, I, so last last oh yeah, go ahead. Go for it.
2: Well I was just gonna say like Amazon and like most of these things are cool and fine. We just want those labor relations to be better. And basically we just say like, okay, Jeff Bezos, like how many how many <laughs> how much money do you need? How about we like Let's cap you at like nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars. How about that? And you can have like three houses, wherever you want. How about that? And then the rest goes to your workers, you know.
0: But but isn't that passing off responsibility? Because it so it seems it seems kind of cheap to say Jeff Bezos Bezos should um, should control himself on how much he earns and spends, whereas Why shouldn't we as people, as individuals, make those small choices and just say, I'm not going to buy from him. I'm not going to buy that from him. Why don't I take the moral responsibility to do the right thing rather than saying, I just can't control myself to buy from Amazon. So he, as an individual, should control himself.
2: Because he will always find people that are willing to exploit, you know. I was just talking about somebody about Nazi Germany and they were saying like, you know, the, it wasn't the German army that was really the problem it was called the Wehrmacht. The Wehrmacht wasn't really the, the problem. It was the SS. So like they separated their standing army, which was just kind of like, you know, whatever. And probably like if they told somebody in the standing army, okay, now we're going to have you guys um, just go murder all those Jews like probably the standing army would have said that's wrong. We're not going to do it. I mean, they probably would have had much more problems. And so they established the SS to do the dirty work. So you had the standing army that like, didn't even realize really what was happening to SS or it was like a don't ask, don't tell, you know, like, I don't want to know, don't tell me. We're just going to do these general soldier things, which are, you know, horrible enough, but. People in many communities, they claimed, and I think, I mean, I think they're probably, I think they're, I believe them, that they didn't know various concentration camps were happening, what was happening the way it was happening. And it wasn't until 1941 that they actually did the whole, like, the full on, like, gassing of people. I mean, it was horrible, but, it, like, in 1933, they started deporting people. And you go in Germany and they have these, like, little, they're called, uh, stumbling stones but they're like these little gold you know not actual gold but like right outside and it says you know uh, gershom Scholem lived here he was deported in 1933 murdered in auschwitz in 1941 and so like like everywhere you go in berlin they're everywhere where all the jewish people live and it says the name of the person and it says deported murdered um or some of them is only deported you know some of them were only deported but um um, but my point is, is that there there's like a separation between the like sort of more reasonable things and then the dirty work things. So Jeff Bezos, I think he can he can always find people that are willing to exploit. And the other like also Nazis, the way they did it, like they didn't know who was killing who. They actually designed it that way. So like in Sachsenhausen, the concentration camp near Berlin, they would march the people in and they would like actually take the people's like height and weight. And they, the people think that they're um, just in for like a little checkup or whatever. The pres the prisoners think they're in for just a little checkup. And then they stand on the wall to get um, measured. And there's a little slit in the wall and someone is there with a gun, (laughs) shoots them in the head. And they have three people in the room that trade off. So nobody knows who killed who. Nobody knows. Like they they developed a way to not know what they were doing, you know? Um, So I think that like McCormick Jr., you know, he can also develop ways and then he can hire Christian people like Dwight Moody to give the like historical Christian backing to what he's doing, you know? So he, 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 there's a conscience even, I think, that, like, needs that. And that's why it's not enough to just say, like, okay, I'm not going to buy from Amazon. Because we can trick ourselves. People did it with slavery, too. I mean, that, that was one of the most eye-opening things for me, was reading, like, biblical justifications of slavery. They're like, it says, slaves be obedient to your masters. You are the one not following the Bible. I'm following the Bible. It says, slaves be obedient to your masters. I'm the biblical Christian, you're not. In fact, we're gonna start our own convention of people that is biblical. We're gonna call it the Southern Baptist Convention. It, it's pro-slavery, it's 1845. They separated from the rest of the Baptists because the Southern Baptists are pro-slavery. Southern, they mean we are, we are pro-slavery, we are biblical Christian. It says slaves be obedient to their masters. God said it, that settles it, I believe it, done. You know <laughs> the exodus is slaves disobeying their masters, you know yeah, <clears throat> so I just don't think it's I don't think because of human nature is why, like I can't be a free market because we will find ways to justify our exploitation
0: yeah, but don't don't you think that with human nature giving people the power to determine who's exploiting um I mean like so take Mao in China. Yeah. Right? He's like uh eh, the intellectuals, the the wealthy like I mean he got to determine who the bad people were. So I just and and maybe that's why I lean towards or I, I would say that if I had to land somewhere I, I'm landing on anarchism. Mm-hmm. Which is like Christian anarchism, no king but Christ. Mm-hmm. Like The church is the, is the ethic for the world. I'm going to invest my time and resources there and be an alternative kingdom to live by example. I'm not going to seek to legislate abortion. What, I mean, whatever, but we're going to try to provide through love for mothers so that abortion doesn't even cross her mind because, um, our community will provide for her and for her kid. That's, that's my ideal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'm not communism, not capitalism yeah. um for me, but I, I don't know if you'd have a response if, if you're pro communism if if you think that empire can control communism well or or human nature can control it well.
2: Yeah, well, I think I mean I would say I guess absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like I I do think that when somebody's given too much power, it it's easy for that to become exploitative and so within a socialist or communist system that it's easy for that to become exploitative and i think like the berlin wall is also another good, good example from what i understand you know it was like a cuba like they were training medical doctors for free and all this stuff and dumping money in education and what was happening was all the people were like, okay, we'll do our education in East Germany and then we'll go to West Germany where uh, the Marshall Plan is happening, uh, the economic miracle, it's like the United States is dumping money in there. And so we'll get trained in East Germany and then we'll go to West Germany. Bam, we're like rich in West Germany. So, like, East Germany had this problem that we're just losing all their people. And <laughs> the United States was turning West Berlin into like, just this playground You if you got across they would give you like a bank account with like hundreds of dollars in it already like you know they were like hey we want people to move to west berlin just come to west berlin and we'll like dump money on you and we're flying in chocolate and bananas and all this or they're making this place it was like pinocchio you know like people were leaving communist east germany to go to this like wonderland that turns out wasn't as wonderland as they imagined. Um, and so East Germany basically had no option except to build a wall and say, nobody can go over there, you know? Um, which is not a good option, uh, but they had kind of like in a way before they even built the wall, they had already lost because they can't compete with exploitation. Like what you were saying about like the underdevelopment or, you know, like the mansion and then like, man, you guys are poor. You must suck. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, no, you got exploitation is a great gig for the people at the top. You know, it's real. it is really good. It's, slavery was like a 700% return on it. It was just a crazy return on investment. You know, like somebody invests a little bit of money in slavery and bam. And all like, you know, it's a way to get rich quick and it worked, you know? Um, But, you know, I would say that slavery is not a good thing. And I would say that the way we treat workers in a, quote, free market system, I mean, is also not, it's not a good thing. So I think we should set up, and there's like biblical, I mean, Leviticus 25, you know, the Jubilee year. This is like kind of a pretty biblical thing. I just listened to this economist, Michael Hudson, basically claiming that, most Middle Eastern cultures realize that if they didn't like cancel the debt every 50 years or so, the inequality would just get too crazy. So that was the Hebrew way of um, doing it. Now, did they ever achieve that? Probably not. But, I mean, I'm okay with like biblical economy. Wipe out the debt every 50 years. That seems good to me. So am I a biblical literalist? You know,
0: <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I do think it is funny. So just a little bit of push. It's, it's interesting how, uh, you know, my group would take the homosexuality as bad from the old Testament because they're biblical literalists, but not the Jubilee. I think you'd probably do the opposite.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, I think like I go with Paul, like he's like the spirit, it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Spirit letter kills, the spirit gives life. And I think like Acts 10 is a good example of like, that's Peter. He has the like dream about um, eating unclean meat. Um, and he's like, he tells God, no, I'm a good Jew. Like I don't eat pigs, you know? And, but God like tells him, no, no, eat pigs, you know? <laughs> like, so this is a crazy reversal that happens. And I think that you have historical reasons for certain things. And I think that like the uh, Leviticus, you know, there's what, six verses against gay people. And um, I think a lot of them come down to exploitation, actually. Um, Maybe all, but yeah. Because I think the the way they saw it was different than the way we saw it. Um, But I also see in Jesus like a pattern where he he forgives the woman caught in adultery. He does say go go and sin no more. Um, And I think that like, it's easier to agree with like adultery as a sin. When I see like, you know, I call them healthy, monogamous, homosexual relationships. I don't think they're hurting anybody. Like the other weird thing is like, it doesn't really affect me. I don't know. We don't
0: need to go too like too far into that, but yeah, no, no, <laughs> it's good. I mean, but but I do, yeah, I do find it really interesting that uh, we have we won't. My group, our I don't know our group, the group you used to be in, whatever. Uh, they they will not be able to hear somebody like Matthew Vines. Mm-hmm. Um, on anything mm-hmm. whatsoever, because you no, know, he's a he's a practicing homosexual, um, and therefore, like, he can't he can't be a Christian, mm-hmm. um, because you you can't be living in sin knowingly and going through that. But then we'll we'll uh, look up to Whitfield and Edwards, who were slave owners, mm-hmm. and um, we're like, well, you know, they were they were men of their times, and they were. I'm like, give me give me a break. Like, what a double standard.
2: Mm. Um, yeah,
0: so Matthew vines. you yeah. his time
2: then? Such a mess. You
0: know? Yeah. Well, no, he can't be because it's clear that homosexuality is wrong. It wasn't right. clear that slavery was wrong. And then yeah. it's just, I mean, the lengths that, that we'll go to, to just, we don't like living in that ambiguity. We don't like, like, we like our categories and we like comfortability. Mm-hmm. and to be like you know what i don't know maybe those maybe those slave owners weren't christians because they were living in abhorrent sin or maybe people are sinners and we can listen to them but then we can also listen to matthew vines
2: yeah.
0: um even if we think homosexuality is wrong but yeah you know, that is that is a bit off topic
2: yeah i think yeah it's and it's weird i think like Ideally, like a socialism cares about everyone who is hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, person in prison, you know, Matthew 25. And it doesn't, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or if you want to go to Luke 6, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Like, So it's not like blessed are the poor, as long as they have the right theology or blessed are the poor, you know as long as they're not caught in adultery it's like no actually so yeah i i, I guess I, I go with that um that that is like the, def- the sermon on the mount is like the defining principle and and that's and that's what led me to socialism is the, the bible um so then people say like i'm not a christian or something but i'm like or and i don't know the legislation thing but then like you're saying anarchism like makes sense to me and i think the way chomsky explains it is he says um if a law doesn't serve the people then it's out or like if it's if the unjust i I don't know that's more of a contentious way are you you familiar with like the way he describes things because i like once you get to the nuance of things And I feel like the like left-wing stuff and even like AOC and Bernie Sanders in the United States, it's like, can we give people a job to make their energy more self-sufficient? Can we, you know, like that's, this is like actually kind of a mild thing or can we like tax Wall Street to make college available to everyone in the United States? you know, tuition-free college. Germany does this. Is Germany socialist? Most of Europe does this. Are they socialist? Mexico, I think, even does this. Like, are they socialist? Like, it's not really, like, that crazy of an idea just to, like, put, like, a 1% tax on Wall Street and then all your public colleges are tuition-free. And we don't have bankruptcy. We give people agency. You know, like, we give people individual rights by not putting them in mountains of debt you know we build public we build a housing that's like affordable developers won't invest in affordable housing because it doesn't have a good return on investment so our poor people just like out of luck i mean do we care you know i guess that's the like biggest question that i have like for conservative christian people is like do we care Because Looking at history, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is founded on slavery. Do they care? And I'd say, like, same thing with Moody Bible Institute. Like, it's founded on Cyrus J. McCormick, Jr. And the question is, do you care? Like, do you care about the workers that were, like, killed unjustly? It was, like, some governor, like, seven years later, basically, like, reopened the case and pardoned, like, the four people that were still in prison. But the four, the first four guys, they were killed, and they actually, like when they died, they said like "Long live anarchy," and then like you know the the hangman's noose or whatever. Um, like they were not repentant about what they did against Cyrus McCormick Jr. Um, so that's the question: is like, do we care? Phil Vischer had a great little video. Did you see this one about? Uh, I think it's called "What Is an Evangelical?" Phil Vischer, the guy who did uh, Veggie Tales.
0: Yeah yeah i saw that
2: and he like i thought he did a great job of kind of like walking through like systemic racism like it's not about you smiling at the black person or whatever it's like about redlining it's about jim crow laws it's about an excessive amount of policing in particular areas and and he ended he's like i just have we just have one question do you care and I thought that was a great, because like, everybody wants to know, okay, what is a practical example of what you want me to do? I was like, I want you to care and then like, let an action flow from that, you know? And Jesus said, it's not about like, who says Lord, Lord, it's about who did the will of the father. Another one that I just came across was, um, was it Matthew like 19, I think was, uh, People will come, he says, like from east and west to eat at my table, while um those who I mean it's like maybe even like the parable of the virgins, that's also in like Matthew twenty five or 24, 23 something like that. But about um like the people that we expected to be there are not the ones that are there. It's like people we didn't expect are the ones that like um inhabit the kingdom of heaven. And I think that well, even the Pope, the Pope freaking said, um, Communists are actually Christians. They just don't know. Pope Francis, you know, you know, people don't like him because he's a little bit too caring, apparently. But um, <laughs> so, who's going to care about Jay Gresham Machen's individual rights? He has to like include women and black people now. This is man real assault on his on the individual rights that black people and women get a chance nowadays.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I guess that's just where that—that's a lot of what's been eating at me too. I mean, like like we were talking about before, twenty sixteen, just seeing. Uh, I mean, a lot happened with twenty fifteen on with politics and seeing hypocrisy uh, a lot. I mean, with with um, Black Lives Matter coming out, and I mean, there was there's a lot um, that I started thinking through, yeah. and. It, ultimately honestly it was what primed me for it was um working on our church's diaconate and seeing the way that we mishandled poor people i mean mm-hmm. just having like a questionnaire to go through all right we'll give you money once but don't let it happen again or you know you, you basically get one shot yeah we'll uh would we not walk with them through anything um it was, yeah. It was, it was just gross, yeah. and um. So that, yeah that that was like that's not that's not the Bible at all. And then mm-hmm. um, Bible Project videos were coming out on the prophets, and you're seeing what Ezekiel says about, you know, this is the sin of your sister Sodom, that she was overfed and unconcerned. Like, no, it wasn't. That wasn't the sin of Sodom. <laughs>
2: Uh, I listen to like
0: Charles um, Spurgeon.
2: I know what the sin of Sodom is. Ezekiel, yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, man, it was just realizing that, yeah this this it's a Christian industrial complex, and it's it's um in bed with the Republican Party, in bed with big money, in bed with comfort. Um, it's just gross because we we don't care. So, yeah, answer to your question. We don't care. And that's what, but I don't think government cares either. And people don't care. Like people are pursuing their own best interest, their own interest. And so for me, anarchism makes sense because it is saying like the problem with my group right now, by and large, political idolatry, they're looking to the state as savior. I think we need to pull out of that and say, there is no king but Christ. You guys take your saviors but we're going to we're going to show you what the big k kingdom looks like and we do that by being a separate distinct kingdom and so we're going to care and love mm-hmm. um not by force but but i mean by example because we do care
2: yeah man and like i i keep it's it's like kind of on the back burner but like to so maybe like actually join a monastery like actually maybe become a monk And it's for basically for that reason that it's like, I would like to be a part of something that is genuinely like giving towards other people. And because, you know, you can't find it. I mean, where does that exist? It's, it's super, like in my community that basically can't exist. You have to like exploit people in order to be able to afford a house. You know, that's the way it is in this community where I live um and but
0: how do you how do you do the monk thing without without withdrawing like and maybe i don't really know what monks do i just imagine like vows of silence and
2: Mm -hmm. um well i think you know and in a way like in Potsdam i've sort of done this like i i was a student and i had subsidized housing because they have housing that's built for students right dorms you know and those dorms are super cheap. So I was paying $270 a month for a room. Like I have a two bedroom apartment. There's another student in the other room. He pays 270, I pay 270. It was a great little apartment. Um, And it's way out in the middle of nowhere. So like, <laughs> I try to like, this is like a monastery. It's like a monastery, but there's no community. There's no like practices. There's no like um, whatever, but I think, that's sort of Yeah. So I mean but I think like the anarchist thing actually like it works. Like and I mean it's just the question really is like do you care? Because I don't think that we're not we're just not caring. And that's why like I left evangelicalism pretty much is because I couldn't find anybody that cared. But then the weird thing is I go to a Democratic Socialist of America meeting, people there care. And they talk about like systemic issues. Now they're not like powerful enough to really change anything, but like And there are anarchists that are involved in the DSA. Um, It's not a perfect organization. And there's a whole bunch of liberals in DSA, which like kind of screw it up because they're all about identity politics. And like, I think it's sort of a good rule of thumb, given the history of the United States and European stuff. But but identity politics is not going to save us, you know, It's not going to do anything good. I mean, you know, of course, yes, governments are not gonna save us. um, But Martin Luther King saved a lot of people, I think. Um, And he did that through kind of social protest. And uh, same with Nelson Mandela, you know, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, those people, they saved people. Um, And so I think that that method is effective but also the church method is effective. And that's why I, I said, I call myself like an interreligious socialist. Um, so I do think that like, and Paul Tillich actually just read um, an autobiographical essay that he wrote. And he's like, there's nothing beyond religious socialism. Um, and so, yeah, I think that Christianity is socialism actually. and um, But socialism is, is, is a very, very, very broad term. So I think, Within socialism, you have a whole bunch of anarchist people. and that sounds weird to us because we associate socialism with the government. but But then, if you read socialist literature, they're ninety actually pretty much i pretty much all of them are anti-government, and some of them, in r- more recent years are more Keynesian, you know, like you said, which is like let's let's build a little bit of welfare system into our community.